I'm working on a thing right now. I don't know if it will ever get finished, um, mm. but it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, anyway, that yeah. has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, that's okay. Um, well, so so the idea that I had, and I had more than one idea for a podcast with you, but one of the ones I had um, that I had you do was, um, you know, I as you know, I listened to I think every episode of Directors Club, and I, you know, I, I started with Cameron Crowe, worked my all the way up through, I guess. The, Alex Ross Perry, because I've listened to all of them, and uh, you know, over you know over the years, um, there's definitely been some episodes where you know, uh, you know, you and I don't always agree on the same films, and in some of the films that I really like, uh, you know, you were quite critical of, and the idea that I had, and um, yeah, for me, I feel like there's there's been a number of cases where films I didn't care for initially. Um, I went back to and had a different experience, a more positive experience with. Um, but almost every film that I think is really good, I didn't think it was almost. I almost never think a film is amazing on the first viewing, if that makes any sense. Like I almost never yeah. trust my first impressions of any film because. And I think I talked about this a little bit on maybe uh, maybe the Rogue episode with you, but like the idea that um, first time I see anything. I'm constantly, you know, having expectations either met or thwarted the entire running time. Yeah. And because so you're, you're as, as an active viewer, you're sort of thinking like, okay, they're going to go this or, okay, it's this kind of movie. Oh, it isn't. It's like, even once you only have only seen five minutes of the movie, you're already sort of building and te- and then subsequently tearing apart these assumptions about the, what the movie is. Yeah. Like, like for example, even with them, um, and we both had like probably more muted reactions than a lot of people with Mad Max Fury Road. But for the first yeah. time that I saw Mad Max Fury Road, um, I went to it knowing that almost everybody in my life had told me it was a masterpiece. Right off the bat, that makes it hard. <laughs> And then yeah, yeah. Um, the fact that it's going to be like this, like overpowering visual spectacle, and you know it was going to be this kind of triumphant marriage of like you know a, a strong, a strong vision auteur with you know pop spectacle. Like it's going to be all things for all people. And yeah. so with each minute that transpires, I'm thinking, is this meeting those criteria? Like, and am I enjoying it to you know the maximum capacity of a, you know? And and it took me a long time to even kind of settle into experiencing anything with it i don't think it was until yeah. 20 minutes into it, i even felt like i was enjoying it because you know this is not a spoiler like within 10 minutes before anything's even developed you're into a 20 minute chase scene and yeah i just like i don't care about any of this yet like you know it, it's all you know we'll get into the cgi and all that but like i don't think i would have that same problem if i were to rewatch it i would just be able to take it for what it is rather than it living up to some kind of expectations. I mean, same thing with like Inherent Vice. Um, I mean, I loved Inherent Vice on the first viewing, but it was like, you feel so much tension because it's like, this is, this is something that is so anticipated for so many people that I know. Yeah. Yeah. And what it represents as far as like this kind of filmmaking, even being made at a major studio, like, you know, what this represents to Paul Thomas Anderson's career, what this represents in terms of like film culture dialogue in the next couple of months. It's like, that's no way to watch a story. Like, cause you have no. all this other stuff in your head. I, I get so anxious sometimes when I'm watching something because I know I have to write about it on Letterboxd just cause I've been writing about every single movie I've seen yeah. for the past two years now. 
And like I watched Hiroshima Monomore. I know. I love your review of that. I, I yeah. My review of that is like I don't. I don't fucking know. I don't know. There. I have. I can't put into that movie into words. And it's yeah. not like. And not that doesn't mean that it's more transcendent and amazing than any other movie I can put into words. It's yes. just there's something about that movie that was devastating and that I couldn't say anything about. And yeah. And I and I get and I started panicking while I was watching it, thinking like, "What the fuck am I going to say on Letterboxd about this movie? Yeah, that won't sound trite." And and I I panicked a lot about. It. And honestly, <laughs> Rebels of Rebels of an of the Neon God was a movie that I actually could have said more, but it was the other thing where it's like I know exactly what I want to say, but it's not stuff I want to say in public, right? <laughs> <laughs> Because the thing, because the thing about that movie is, I just relate to what shitbags the characters are. They're so right, they, and not in a hilarious Todd Salons like everything is dreary way. They're just like they just hurt people, yeah, just because they're they're thoughtless or or they're insecure or whatever. And it's I just felt that movie so hard, but in ways that would just be you know awkward, and embarrassing to talk about, yeah. on, a, well, on a public place. Well, I- also, the other thing is, and I I apologize. It's probably maybe evidence as, as this uh, podcast progressed so far. I feel like I just have less to say. <laughs> like I I don't know if the I had an illusion that I had a lot to say because I had a podcast that people listen to, and uh-huh. now that I'm not on a podcast, like I have been broken of that illusion. But I just feel like I have less and less to add um, to the dialogue about anything, and. I still write reviews just because I, you know, if if nothing else, it will be an interesting journal to look back and be like, oh, really? That's what I thought about that movie at that time. Yeah. See, I or, I, I always am afraid of putting. I almost never write reviews on Letterboxd, and it's it's part of it is just because I don't. It's just, it's just laziness, probably. But some of it is also my 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 opinions change so much from even from like like a few days later on films sometimes, and like. It feels like, even though, like, who, who the hell is even reading it? Like, I don't even yeah. know, know why I care, you know, if if my opinion changes, like, a day later on a film. But it just, something almost embarrassing about it to me sometimes. Like, how how could I have been so wrong only a week ago about this? But it's, it, can be, it can be both ways, or it can be like, oh, no one cares what I have to say. No one's reading this. Or yeah. it can be, oh, Jesus, I don't know. If I force myself to say something, I'm going to say something dumb, and then someone's going to take it seriously and think that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And they'll take that as a certain amount of pretension that I understand what <laughs> is even happening, which I don't. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just a fool. Yeah, I think I think the older I get, the more I trust my own opinion, or at least my first impression opinions on almost anything that I see. And I and I, I think it's I don't know what that's all about. Like that's just where I'm at. But it's uh, like with all of the films that we're gonna talk about, and however yeah. long we're gonna talk about them, because I know <laughs> I know that like at least with well, one yeah, of them we've I, already talked all, about. <laughs> this is all prelude to say that uh, <laughs> to to say that you know a lot of these films that we are gonna talk about. I I can go into details about the things I don't like, but yeah. uh, the difference between my review of them now and and my first review of them uh, on the podcast is probably that back then I was super confident about that my opinions were correct, and I and I thought that if people disagreed with me, that means they were coming at they were looking at them incorrectly. Like I had a much uh, shittier kind of like objective uh, quote unquote look at art. <laughs> which is bullshit. And so 
Well, Probably a lot of this I'm just going to go, eh, it's okay if you like it, it's fine. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know, because well, one of them, and I really, I almost kind of regret picking this one, but well, since we can start with it, with the, uh, the, man, sure. who fe- the man Who Fell to Earth, was, yeah. um, which I even wrote this all down, uh, was covered on episode 78 of Director's Club, the Nicholas Rogue uh-huh. episode. Um, that you were on. Which, yes, was I was on. So we've already actually had our initial dialogue on this film um and i almost almost a year ago almost two months yeah almost a year ago um and and the thing with that one why i picked it i i was pretty confident on at least two of them that a second viewing and let me i let me just like state for the record what i was hoping sure was that at least one of these films um because these were all ones that you had pretty pretty strong negative opinions on that at least one of them a second viewing might you might see something in it that you didn't see the first time that changed your feeling on it um, for better, hopefully. But, um, you know, we'll, you know, I, but then it's funny cause uh, I told Jim about this idea and then you guys did a bonus episode where you flat out say that you almost never have a revised opinion going back to a film. <laughs> and I was like, Oh fuck. I had the worst idea for this bonus episode. Um, that is, that is almost more because, I don't consider it a revised opinion if I saw it in high school and my vague memory is, eh, whatever. Right. Like, I, I, I don't, movies I haven't seen, you know, in the past 10 years, I don't, I don't have strong opinions about, with the exception of one of these movies. Right. Um, so, or I just don't rewatch things. Yeah. Well, you, you said that you don't even usually make yourself finish a film that you're not enjoying. That's, that is, that's true, unless it's for the podcast. Yeah. So, The Man Who Fell to Earth was a film that I was not so sure what I thought of it the first time I saw it because I found it very confusing. And, yeah. I, and I also saw a cut version of it. So I don't think I really... I don't think I connected with it until what my roommate in college was watching my copy of it in our dorm room and was totally enthralled by it. And it was not someone that I even thought would get into an experimental narrative. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, huh, that's interesting because it was just surprising to me that he was enjoying it. And then I saw it on the big screen uh, at Cornell Cinema as an usher, and I saw the uncut X-rated, and X-rated, you know, being an NC-17 um, cut yeah. of the film. And, you know, it still has a lot of elements that don't add up neatly into a clear story, but that was the first time that I really thought that I loved it. And that's maybe the third time I saw it. Um and I know that when we talked about Nicholas Rogue that you responded to Walkabout and responded to Don't Look Now and maybe to a lesser extent uh, Bad Timing, but um, Performance and uh, Man Who Fell to Earth and I don't even know if you finished, was it uh, Insignificance? Um, I did not. Yeah. But so Man Who Fell to Earth was one that you had pretty strong uh, negative reaction to. And I, yeah. I, I already know what your answer is going to be on this. But uh, so I guess I guess what the questions I had um, and I have this for all because, you know, uh, I have this for all of these. But so my questions would be, uh, first of all, um, what was your experience covering the director of that episode, researching it? What do you uh, what do you remember about studying for the Nick Rogue episode? Um, I, I remember, God, Man Fell to Earth is actually a perfect example, even though a lot of his movies work better than Man Who Fell to Earth. Man Who Fell to Earth is the perfect example of how I sort of felt 
uh, watching Nicholas Rogue uh, movies for the first time, which was, oh boy, okay, <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, let's tuck in because because there's a lot of filmmakers who even when I'm not super into their movies. Mm-hmm. I would actually like another – if I can jump ahead a little bit. Oh, sure. Another film we're going to be talking about is Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Right. Um, and I think that Man Who Fell to Earth and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me are good comparisons because Twin Peaks – both are movies that I think just has so much nonsense. Um, and they I both. think there's so much superfluous – like honestly, the entirety of the character of Rip Torn – could be excised from Man Who Fell to Earth, and all that would change is that it would be mercifully shorter. Like, <laughs> I really don't think he... Because I, I don't think... Like, he's not really a point of audience identification because he's rip-torn. Like, he's the least relatable person <laughs> who's supposed to... And, and it's not like the ultimate thing that... Ha- you know, the ultimate story of what happens to David Bowie's character really is paralleled by him or is illuminated by it. I well, just think... I mean, he, he offers like an interesting contrast, like in being like an uber kind of macho character, you know, in a film where the other male leads are Buck Henry and David Bowie. So, yeah, but I, I don't know to me in watching the movie, that's not what the film felt like it was about. Right. So yeah. I didn't get a lot of that. So like, that's one example. There is a lot of like, there's just a lot of scenes that don't really seem to mean anything. Like when he just is looking back in time and seeing the settlers and there's, yeah. I, these are all things that maybe if, if this film felt, if I could relate to David Bowie's character, if there was like the thing these are things that maybe made sense in the novel because the novel has like internal monologue and you understand, and you are actually allowed access to the character's thoughts. Yeah. The novel does explain a lot of things that the film deliberately does not. So, okay. So, but the, so there's a lot of superfluous things in Manifeld's earth. The same is absolutely positively true of twin peaks fire walk with me. I think the whole opening coda when they're with, uh, Chris Isaac and Kiefer Sutherland studying, you know, the, the, the murder of Teresa Banks, that is absolutely inessential it doesn't add anything to me at all i think i think honestly the problem was that it's a twin peaks movie and therefore we need to get agent cooper in there somehow and therefore we need the fbi in here somehow but obviously they're not in twin peaks yet like if the movie well, just if the movie just opened on the the twin peaks sign and it's laura and uh the other one getting going to school and stuff run up a that, yeah yeah wrote, well, uh, uh, Romette, uh, 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 uh donna yeah, Donna going to school. Like, that that would be wonderful for me. I'd love that. But the difference between Man Who Fell to Earth and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me mm-hmm. is that David Lynch is a filmmaker who, on a gut level, I usually really respond to. Mm-hmm. Um, he, um, not when he's being at his, his most sort of self-indulgent, but there's a lot in Twin Peaks that is actually very specific and telling a very specific story and telling it in a very specific way. And, like... And it doesn't just feel like little vignettes. It doesn't just feel like, oh, she's dancing and that's all code. And then we explain the code three seconds later and it doesn't – whatever. Like all that stuff is – just just Lynch's filmmaking style re- speaks to me more. Whereas Rogue's just way of making films feels mm-hmm. so impossibly dated to me. Like it almost felt like he uh, – it feels like he was trying to make it the most 70s movie ever. There's just so many just – dissolves and 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 cross cuts and and all of these and like j- jump editing and and 
sound design, like, and weird effects, and there's so much in Manifel to Earth that just has not aged gracefully at all, and it's very distracting. So I can't even enjoy it on a moment-to-moment basis because I don't think it's beautiful or compelling, like, aesthetically. Hmm. Well, no, I mean, that's, that is, I mean, it's, you know, I think that's, you know, I mean, that's, it's all very subjective. What is aesthetically right. pleasing? I mean, I, yeah. I, I have a very different take on it. It's surprising to me only cause, um, cause I know that we both love seventies Altman and I, I think there's yeah. some superficial, uh, parallels in terms of like the, the way zoom lens, like the, uh, the camera style reminds me a little bit of Altman. Uh, yeah. with Rogue, is the editing style that is really makes it quite different of course but the yes and also the content altman sure Alt, you, you i've never watched an altman movie and didn't know what the characters and didn't feel emotionally connected to the characters or he if he is sort of keeping it distance from the characters it's in like interesting and productive ways like in three women or something right Whereas I never related to the, any characters in Man Who Fell to Earth. I hated some of the characters. I really hate Candy Clark in this movie. Mm-hmm. I I think it's the kind of character that, like Ellen Burstyn would play a lot, or um, or you know in a previous decade like Shirley MacLaine would play. Right, this sort of doomed woman who is just not sort of smart enough, and she's constantly pining over this guy she can't have, and she's sort of settling for being for being like second place and it puts all of her self-worth in this relationship. Like it's the sort of thing that is pathetic, but can be really poignant with the right person playing it. And Candy Clark just comes across as pathetic full stop. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I didn't, I didn't like her character. At all either. <laughs> um, well, let me, uh, all right. So, so I, I feel like, I feel like with Manny Fell to Earth, most of what we have to say probably we already said in the earlier yeah. episode. Did, did, did you rewatch it for this episode? I did. Yeah. Did you get any any new things out of it this time watching it? Um, I, you know, I've seen it so many times. I don't think I noticed that there was a Young Americans uh, like a, a display for the Young Americans album for David Bowie, like out of focus in the record store, like oh, when okay. Rip Torn buys the uh, album that Newton uh, put out towards the end of the film. I think, you know, I mean, I just find it such a fascinating, charming film. I mean, I, 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 and I like Candy Clark in it too. I, I just have a different take on it, I guess. I, I just love that, that character, the Bowie character, because it's such, such an unusual character still like that, that kind of like very sleek androgynous kind of look like when he shows up with the, with the hat and like the kind of almost kind of like Joan Crawford melodrama angles of light on his face. And it's just, there's something really kind of powerful about it. And then the, um, just the fact that he's just so accepting of everything, even when things are, have gone totally wrong for him. And he's not angry ever. He's not bitter. He's just like, he can't, he can't express those negative emotions or can't feel them. It's just, there's like a certain kind of like, it's almost kind of like, uh, <laughs> Like if E.T. didn't make it home and just became a drunk and felt sorry for himself like that, that there's something kind of blackly funny to me about just the whole notion of that story. (laughs) Yeah, I I think if it was on a smaller scale, that maybe would have read more or if. I don't know. I just I I always felt at arm's length from David Bowie's character at all times. Yeah, well, he I mean, yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, it's the fact that I, I think it's also just like I love the marriage of that story with that filmmaker actor combo because it's you know the um the whole notion of an alien 
you know, in, in, uh, on earth kind of being mirrored by the fact that it's a, uh, you know, a foreign filmmaker, foreign actor, kind of like in the midst of Americana, like that kind of fish out of water thing. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't mind things being ultra seventies either. So, I mean, yeah. you, you could be right. And that it, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, but all right. So since you brought up twin peaks, fire walk with me, like, so, yeah. um, David Lynch, when you were preparing for that, I knew that you already had pretty strong opinions on ones you liked and hated with him. What What do you right. remember preparing for the David Lynch episode? Um. Well, number one, I had tremendous anxiety over everything. Even even though back then I was way more confident in my opinions and way more sure that nah, I secretly actually knew the real correct <laughs> answers as to what his good movies were. Like that yeah. horrible garbage that I no longer have. I mean, I still have my own opinions, but I no longer think of them as necessary or canon or whatever. Right. But, um, so preparing for that episode was alternately wonderful and terrible. And because, <laughs> uh, I mean, that was the first time I saw Mulholland drive and really understood it, um, in a way that I, I guess I need, cause I remember Zach Patante of the film jive podcast was on that episode and I was asking everyone what their interpretations of Mulholland Drive was, and he that was his favorite Lynch film, and he said he doesn't have an interpretation. Yeah. And I thought that was baffling, because I guess just the way my brain works, I need if, – if there isn't some strong emotional, like, readily available emotional undercurrent, I need some sort of explanation for – why why this thing is good you know why that why things are proceeding as oddly as they are well let me ask you this like so because that's something that i feel like ties together a few of these films is like opponents of most of these films we're going to talk about uh feel that they're too obscure like the intentions yeah. are too obscure that it ultimately doesn't add up to anything uh yeah, I that mean, seems to be the... i think i think ultimately what happens is if you make a really enigmatic movie a lot of people's enjoyment of that movie will end up being reliant on their on on their love of that aesthetic, right? Uh, and sense and and just sort of how in tune they are with their sensibility. There's some people who think Lynch's humor is really funny, and they watch Wild at Heart, and they're like, "That movie's a hoot! Like that yeah. movie is really lively, and it's funny, and it has all these weird scenes, and it's hilarious." And I think. I find Lynch's humor widely just intolerable. Right. And that's, and so anything that can't be directly, this equals this. And therefore like, and I also don't have emotional access to, you know, like that's just done. Whereas like three women, I don't have a theory for three women. I don't know what three women is about, but I love every moment in three women. And therefore I love three women. Right. And if someone were to come to me and it's like, yeah, but it's just another garbage. Oh, it's identity. It's a, it's claims to be exploring identity, but what is it actually saying about identity to me? I would have no answer. Yeah. I doubt (laughs) Altman would either. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I think that there's a lot of that in Lynch's work that, that, some of it I just have an instant access to, and some of it I don't. Like Blue Velvet makes hundred percent internal sense to me. Yeah. Um, Head, very my my. I always think about the Mel Brooks episode of WTF, yeah. where Mel Brooks says that he got David Lynch to direct uh, Elephant Man because he said because Eraserhead was the weirdest movie I ever saw, but it was very very simple and it made a lot of sense, and that 
it's funny because so many people complain the opposite about Eraserhead, but you know, Mel Brooks, maybe the most obvious, <laughs> like thuddingly on the nose person in the history of filmmaking. Yeah. The person who will stop and explain their own joke. He saw, he saw Razorhead and said, Oh yeah, I know what that's about. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I mean, you know, I think, I mean, David Lynch, I, I, I never try to talk people that don't like his work into liking it because I understand why, you know, yeah. people would resist it. They either think it's, you know, that the, the humor isn't funny or that they want something that, you know, makes more rational sense. If it's something like Mulholland Driver Lost Highway, where they get thrown out of the story by mm-hmm. the, the abstract element of it. Um, so with the film, um, cause I was torn between Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me or Lost Highway. And I thought that the odds that you would respond to Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me on a rewatch more so would be greater than Lost Highway. Cause I think Lost you were, you were correct. Yeah. I, I was, I could not stand Lost Highway the first time I saw it, and I, 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 I do not think I ever will stand that movie. Yeah. So with Lost Highway, let me let me ask you this: Is your sure. problem with Lost Highway that it has a strong opening half hour and then falls apart, or do you think Absol- the whole th- thing? Is absolutely. Bad? Okay. Absolutely. I think the opening half hour is incredible, and I think Balthazar Getty is one of the worst, most boring actors you could ever watch. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I I think that the opening half hour of Lost Highway is, I mean, for my money, the best David Lynch ever was. But I understand when. Yeah, I think I think I think most passionate fans of Lost Highway, and, and it's a divisive film among Lynch fans. Um, most passionate fans of Lost Highway are thinking of that opening half hour. Yeah, I I I agree with that. I think that is what people are doing, and it and again, it's it's something that I used to do that I try to no longer do, which is like force people to justify their taste in a thing. Yeah, but but like I really do think a lot of people have selective memory with Lost Highway. Well, and we can talk about another film in a little bit where the opening half hour might be what people remember about it the most. Uh-huh. Um, but the uh, the thing with Lost, I mean, Lost Highway, I like the entire thing. Like I think that the uh, the tailgating set piece is a little bit broad for my taste. It's almost a little more Coen Brothersy. When it gets Coen Brothersy. With his like mobster violence in um, Holland Drive, also um, that that I, I I like it okay, but I like I like when he deals with dread more than I like when he does comic set pieces around the dread. Yeah. Um, but but with Fire Walk with Me, so I I think I got the impression in the Lynch episode that you hadn't seen Fire Walk with Me in a while when you had done that episode. Am I, I, I didn't watch it in preparation. Okay. That's what I thought. I watched it the first, I watched it after I finished Twin Peaks. Okay. And what was your first impression of, of Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me after seeing it following the show? It was a massive disappointment because it featured almost none of the things I liked about Twin Peaks. Okay. Um, so going back to it now, what was your take on it this time? I think it is an incredible movie buried under a bunch of nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) I think I, the fact that it, the fact that Laura's story is so dark and so terrible and is, and it is so upsetting 
um, and is such a terrifying depiction of abuse and of cries for help. And I think really actually the sort of thing that you don't normally, or at least I would never think to compliment Lynch for, really well-observed character study as far as the idea of someone who is in trouble is um, again, uh, as, as someone who can and can sort of relate to this, someone who's in trouble will alternately cry for help and then go into denial mode and then just be like, yeah, fuck it. I'm doubling down. I'm going to do more coke. I'm partying. I'm going out tonight. And it feels like scene to scene, Laura just switches between whether she's panicking or whether she is suppressing those panicking. Um, even after she figures out who Bob is, which is... Yeah. Which is pretty early on in the movie, yeah. And I, uh, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen the show Twin Peaks, right? Um, but it is an incredible movie. But then there's also just, oh yeah, and then we get to see how Bobby became a drug dealer. What? Well, who cares? Well, what does that have to do with the story? Oh, and then and then uh, we get to see Cooper hanging out in. In uh, the FBI headquarters, what does this have to do with the story of a of a girl who is spiraling downhill? Like, well, and then also there's the log lady shows up and does a log lady thing, and then there's more Black Lodge stuff. Like, I hate I I the idea even watching the show Twin Peaks, the idea of Black Lodge being anything other than a representation of Cooper's dreams, mm-hmm. I've always hated. Um, really? Okay. Yeah i I really don't like the mythology of that show. I like. The best parts of that show are when it's being evocative, and the worst parts of it are when it's nailing down sort of this equals this. Right. Um, and for the first, like, say, nine episodes of that show, um, pretty much up until they solve Laura's murder, like, they do a really good job of not nailing down anything um, about what the what is being evoked. And, and so all of that kind of thing in Firewalk With Me is nails on chalkboard and then there's a bunch of humor in firewalk with me that is just the worst especially early on with Kiefer sutherland and chris isaac yeah well, but but i think under all of that the the and just the story of laura palmer if if he had somehow and i mean this is my problem like i don't think i think david lynch has a problem with restraint and it's, it's clearly not a problem to people who really love everything that he does but to someone who doesn't like if he just had someone to say no this is laura's story we should make this a short film like a short like 90 something minutes and just tell the story of laura's final days and you can still keep in the surreal elements you can still keep everything else but not tying it so hard to the show um that would be that would it would just be an incredible movie Hmm. for me well you know that i mean you probably already know this but the original assembly cut of firewalk with me was much longer and had a lot of scenes that had more of the humor of the show and had more of the characters yeah. from the show. And he had to pare down as, as you know, much extra material as you're already having a, a an issue with in the final yeah. version. There was even more of it that was like pared away to get to this very dark story of the Laura Palmer story. But um, for me, I, I saw that film having never seen the show. Um, uh-huh. I had seen it actually not even really being much of a David Lynch fan, but it was a film that was getting some word of mouth among people I knew as just this really weird acid trippy kind of movie. Like, Uh so even 
I, as much as it might play strange if you've seen the show, I mean, it was like non sequitur city when I saw it. Like, I didn't know anything. Sure. Like, like why, you know, like, you know, when, when the man from another place shows up or the, the white horse shows up, like, it just, but it had like this unhinged horror movie element to it. Like when, um, you know, when Bob would appear in the bedroom or even like that shot cut when she's at uh, Harold's house and like trying to talk to him. And then there's like a sudden cut to her face kind of like showing kind of like a demonic face. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Like it's a scary movie. <laughs> it is. It is. Absolutely. Um, I think the early scenes that you're talking about with Chris Isaac – um, it's probably pretty apparent to you are like meant to be a satire of the show in like, in, you know, uh, like everything, everything that you associate with, with Twin Peaks is like inverted. And I think that the, um, I think that that scene where they're like breaking the code with the woman, um, is meant to be a satire of like fan theories regarding the symbolism in that show. Yeah. The thing, the thing about that sort of thing is just, if you are against that, then just don't engage in it. <laughs> like I yeah. really well, I don't think going it's out of your going out of your way to just like totally make your movie lopsided and and off and off and and, and just feeling off t- pacing wise. Yeah. Just to like say something about your experience working on the TV show, it feels like that's why I wish this wasn't connected to the TV show. I think yeah. the TV show would benefit because it would because I think. Again, I, to me, the TV show is those first, you know, nine, eleven, whatever those right. like those first uh, dozen episodes or so, um, where everything is about discovering this town through the eyes of Agent Cooper. Where you think that Agent Cooper is the weirdest thing in the town until you realize he isn't, and like that world building of those of that show, the first season is so amazing, and the. Dis- the joy of the discovery is so important um, that nailing it down with actually these are what Laura's last days were not as not it does not add to the show at all it detracts from the show and then on the other hand there's a lot in this movie that is just like oh look it's Leo and Shelley oh man Leo and Shelley doing their Leo and Shelley thing see Leo's still mean to Shelley like yeah that's just scenes like that that are just feel like well it's Twin Peaks movie and we don't want to piss off the Twin Peaks fans who right. come out to see it. Well, that's that's kind of what I fear with them bringing it back is that it will have too many moments like that. Yeah. I whether or not Lynch is involved, I have no faith in re, in a, a reboot of Twin Peaks. Well, not, not in a post Twin Peaks world. See, the thing is is like it's also a post Inland Empire world. Like it's also, you know, I mean David Lynch I haven't seen that one because well, that that sounded to me to be the the least tolerable Lynch movie. Yeah, you'll, so you, I've avoided you, it. you would not enjoy it, but you you might you would probably appreciate it in theory for having the guts to be far out because it's a very far out movie. But that's probably where your patience with it would end. Um, I I don't think I'd have the patience to sit through all three plus hours of it. Yeah, I I I, I love it, but it's definitely not one I would recommend to you. Okay. Um, but it's funny because uh, with Firewalk with me, I don't know how to say this. Um. So I, I don't know how to quite word this. I, I've known girls that had experiences with abuse, um, and this was a film that they liked. I know more than one girl that, mm-hmm. that had like horrible personal experiences that are like in the film, and they clung to this film. Like that, this was like a cult film for a couple of people I knew that had like personal tragedy yeah. along those lines. And I always think about that when I watch it. I've known several people. Um, 
of all among several friends of mine that like this is their favorite David Lynch movie. And I, I one of my friends, I don't know if I quite agree with this, but he had the idea that this was the first Lynch film where he's not making fun of the characters, which I, I don't know if I quite see it that way, but it's interesting to think of it as being more sincere than the, like the pop comic Fantasia of something like wild at heart. Uh, I, I, I see, I definitely see it as more sincere, at least in the parts that I like the parts I don't like are the parts where it feels less sincere and feel more like wild at heart. Right, right. Well, I mean, and I actually, you know, I mean, I should say that I like Wild at Heart, but I mean, I, yeah. but I think if I walk with me, I think has so many set pieces that I think are so amazing that it's it, like the scene, um, you mentioned the drug dealing with Bobby, but that sequence where they go out into the woods and are just having, like, she's having this laughing fit and then like there's a murder and then it's just like, you killed Mike. Like, do you know the scene I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that scene is really eerie in a way that only David Lynch seems to know how to do. And I I can't even explain why I find it so incredible, because it's, if I were to describe it, it it sounds like something you could totally cut out of the movie. (laughs) But I think it has, like, a certain kind of eerie power to it that it... I think there was probably a way to do that scene or a scene similar to it that would not involve, like, two previous scenes setting up that Bobby has this connections to Jacques and to Leo at like, right. That stuff feels like fan service. I think you could, I think a similar scene could be achieved in any number of ways that again, don't have to tie into the subplots of the TV show. Right. Right. I, I could understand that. I mean, I think, um, I don't know. I think there's something like considering that that film like was, as you probably already know, the, you know the, the backlash to David Lynch was so immense by the time that that came out that it just was piled on in every direction when it came out. Yeah. Um, like, I don't think I even was really paying attention to films that closely when Twin Peaks Firework when they came out, but even as someone that was only like vaguely aware of that and the show and everything at the time, I remember hearing that that was like the turkey of the year, like on some TV thing, like it was like, it, 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 you know, it was like Geely or it was like, um, what's another example? Like Showgirls or like, it was like, it was yeah. like a famous, famously trashed movie. And right. it's weird that, I mean, I think, I think it was Caillou de Cinema, like had it like in the top 10 films of the nineties, um, when they assessed the decade later on, I don't know if I would go quite that far, but I think that there's. For, for a film that had such a poisoned reputation, I think it's got so much to recommend it that I, I think I thought that you would respond at least to the Laura Palmer narrative. I'm glad, I'm glad that you at least like that element of yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The first time around, I couldn't even appreciate that just cause I was so annoyed that it wasn't the tone of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back now, I do think it is, there is an honesty to it that you don't often see in his other works. Even the works I really love, there is a gr- grounded real emotion in that it's such a small scale terror yeah. Um, I mean, the thing that I don't like about the mythology is that the idea of, <laughs> uh, I don't like, I, I, I'm trying to word this in a way that doesn't spoil anything. Right. Uh, but I like horror on a small scale. And I think that Lynch often kind of, um, uh, instinctually tries to tie, tries to make terrible things good versus evil. Yeah. Or at least or at least contextualize them in that way. 
and then subvert them. But, like, he can't ever just let things be... Frank Booth can't just be this horrible person in this town. He has to sort of represent everything that Kyle MacLachlan fears. And, I mean, it it works great in Blue Velvet, but uh, there is, you know, he can't... Uh, he can't just ground something. Well, I mean, that's not true. He grounds things in the moment. The thing about the thing about his films is he'll ground very small things uh, in the moment. They're not actually like giant fantasies, battles between the forces of good and evil. But you know, on a moment-to-moment basis, there'll be weird grounding moments, like the sex scenes in Blue Velvet, like with Frank Booth. It's so weird and specific. It doesn't, you know. Yeah. But. But yeah, it always has a larger than life quality. Also, I think Lynch just has a spirituality that I and I do not. Yeah. <laughs> like I think there is something that he what what, what, what gives it away? The angel at the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's that sort of thing, and yeah, and also there is the idea of tying small scale human tragedy and suffering to this idea of forces in the world that are good and evil working to each other, like, I don't have any connection to that sort of thing. Yeah, and actually that was a complaint in some corners that that a, 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 a real serious, and I, I'm, I'm treading lightly also, like, a real serious uh, social problem could be explained away as involving possession from an evil force. I think, I mean, I don't think, I wouldn't, I, I mean, and that's not my—that's not my yeah. criticism. Like, that's just one that was voiced. And I wouldn't criticize it in terms of like this movie is insensitive or this movie is regressive, right, or anything like that. I think that he just accesses emotions in that in those kind of roundabout nightmare ways, um, you know. Uh, but and I think that's fine, and I think. I'm glad he does it, and I'm glad that he does it. You know that he trusts himself to do it, even if he doesn't always understand what he's doing. Right? Not like David Lynch is an outsider; as he doesn't understand. Like clearly, he's a great craftsman and a great artist. But like, in just in that, he works on an instinctual level that clearly so many other people have those same feelings. And I'm glad for those people that the people who love everything David Lynch does just because his sensibility is so in tune with their own, but I am not one of those people. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because you, you don't really fit into the Lynch lover or Lynch hater category because you, you love and hate things sometimes in the same film with equal measure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I actually saw the first David Lynch film I outright hate recently because um, he did a uh, concert film of uh, Duran Duran and it's all. How, why, do you hate it because it's Duran Duran or like how, no. how offensive can a concert film be? Um, the problem with it, I like Duran Duran and I love David Lynch and I think that it looks well photographed like Peter Deming shot it who shot Lost Highway and mm-hmm. um, the problem is is that when David Lynch is brought in to do commercial projects, I think he has like a very uh, he, he he falls into self parody. I think um, like yeah. he 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 becomes like the guy paid to bring the weird, and I think that <laughs> like Christopher Walken in an Adam Sandler movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that he brings in like all of these odd visuals that he then lays in over top of the performances. Um, like, it, oh. like in a, re- in a way that is distracting and not 
flattering to either one of them. And I, I don't know how much of it is like done live in the moment, like superimposing things that like uh-huh. he pre-planned, but like, so say for example, like come undone, the Duran Duran song is being performed and like, there'll be like cuts to shots of like hot dogs on a grill. Cause you know, they come undone too. And uh, you know, it's just like, it's just dumb. It's dumb. And uh, I mean, sometimes the images work. I mean, some of the, and it's shot black and white. So it looks kind of evocative you know, at times, and Duran Duran are doing their best considering they're, like, really trying to push a new album that I don't know, but they're also, you know, throwing out the 80s hits, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. There's just something that rubbed me the wrong way with it, but, uh, you know, that's, it's bound to happen. I can't, and I, I feel good that I'm not, like, so forgiving that I can forgive, uh, you know, something that, my, my first instinct is to say this is kind of bad. Do you, uh, do you even, like, so, like, it's funny you say, yeah, it's just kind of dumb. I feel that way about movies that people love by David Lynch. I feel that it kind of just feels like dumb self-parody. Uh, like, and But have you seen other, like, little I've seen one-off everything. projects? Okay, so, you, like, how do you feel about, like, Dumbland, for that, for, for that matter? Like, oh, dumb- that, to me, feels like the, the worst thing he's yeah. ever done. Well, no, yeah, I actually like Dumbland more than the Duran Duran thing because it's shorter. Uh-huh. Um, sure. Yeah, but I, well, honestly, I would say this. I think that the things that he does for the internet, with the exception of rabbits, I think uh-huh. are I, I, I don't really care about it. Um, I think that as a feature film director, like things that played theatrically, I think yeah. he's one of the great American film directors. I, I think yeah. that I think that Dune is the worst one, and even Dune has a lot that's interesting. I mean, when he, you know, there's stuff in it that I think is stupid, but I, 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 you know, that's a compromised film. I still think there's a lot that's interesting about Dune. And then everything else, well, Elephant Man, you know, I I like it. I I respect it more than I ever rewatch it. But, you know, any any filmography with Eraserhead and Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me and Lost Highway, Straight Story, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, even... um, but say, did I say Wild at Heart? I like Wild at Heart. Yeah. Um, I, I just think and the, the Twin Peaks TV show, uh, the Hotel Room TV show, which totally gets forgotten. Um, there's a lot. That, and even the early shorts like The Grandmother, I, I think, you know, there's a lot that I think is really powerful uh, in ways that just, I don't know, like there's something, I mean, someone like Robert Altman or Howard Hawks have more great films. But I yeah. think, I think, you know, when I think about like, that scene, you know, since we just mentioned it a few minutes ago, like that scene with, with Bobby and Laura with the football and like, is this Mike? Did I kill Mike? Like, there's like something like just so simple but horrifying about a scene like that. And I don't know how he can pull it off sometimes. Because it's well, part of, I will say part of for Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me is uh, – what's the actress's name? Cheryl Lee. Cheryl Lee is unbelievable. Yeah, in that movie, she is so good. Yeah, yeah. When she uh, when she leaves the house after seeing something horrifying, and then like cowers cowers in the grass by some bushes, it's almost like a like a scared animal. And it's just like I don't know. Like there's like these little touches to it, like just the way things are staged and trimmed. Like I don't know what his process is. Like just encourage. Like I, I'm, sh- I'm sure there's a fair amount of hands-on acting, but I'm sure there's also a fair amount that lets the actors uh, find their own behavior in a moment like that. I just, I, I, you know, I, I know that Naomi Watts tends to be the most celebrated performance of, of an actress in his body work now, but Cheryl Lee, 
is it's a gutsy performance. Like it it gets it gets animal like, it gets sad, it gets I don't know. Heightened. It gets yeah, yeah. it gets like crazy heightened like theatrical yeah. way over the top, but also like super troubling and grounded and then just kind of like flat and uh and unaffected during the the falling through space like scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I think I think I mean I understand when people think that it's kind of a you know a messy execution in places. But I still think that that film has more power than most things I see, and I, I mean, I've, and I've grown yeah. used to it over the years. I've seen it so many times that even the even the real eccentric uh, moments that lose a lot of people, like the David Bowie cameo, which I still you know think is like just a just a baffling moment in film. Uh, I don't even mind that stuff. I actually do think that the um, I like the the, the a rapport with Chris Isaac and Kiefer Sutherland. I, I can understand why it would be, you know, you, you'd be you know uh, happy to see the Laura Palmer story happen sooner. But I, I think that, I mean, for me, like, there's a certain kind of deadpan comedy to it that I, I do like. Um, I mean, Wild Wild at Heart I, has that kind of humor to it also. But it's, I mean, that's that's a whole other conversation, Wild at Heart. But um, so I, I mentioned. Um, I'm talking about Lost Highway, films that have a strong 30 minutes and then it becomes a little bit more debatable. Uh, oh, yes. So, uh, episode 13, you covered Peter Weir. And yes. this is actually a film that I forgot you even didn't like because I meet so many, I, I meet so few people that have an issue with this film, although it does have its opponents. Um, Picnic at Hanging Rock. And um, so. Tell me about preparing for the Peter Weir episode, what you remember about that. This is an older one. This was episode 13. Yeah. Um, so the movies I watched for Peter Weir were Picnic and Hanging Rock, Last Wave. Um, I watched Master and Commander. I – I so my I remember my, my initial thoughts about Picnic and Hanging Rock. Well, I remember my initial thoughts about Peter Weir was I couldn't get a good grasp on – exactly who he was because i felt that last wave and master and commander were both such great movies but Mm -hmm. so drastically different um oh mosquito coast i love mosquito coast and fearless fearless is great too so he does a lot of very different kinds of movies yeah that are high quality um i actually i just got the way back because we had an extra copy at work and we didn't have the artwork for it which means we would have had to sell it for like really cheap so i just took it home <laughs> so i i have the way back now too and i'm excited to watch that because i heard that's actually pretty good i've heard good things about it you know i i gotta confess right off the right off the bat i've seen almost no peter weir films I've, okay have, so... I, i've seen picnic hanging rock i've seen the last wave uh-huh i've seen dead post society and the truman show um i think that's it okay so, so I, haven't even, I haven't even seen fearless which is one of jim's favorite films <laughs> So fear, yeah, fearless, fearless was I think the thing we talked about the most. Yeah, probably just because I couldn't, probably just because I had to make everything about me back then. Like <laughs> again, I'm, I'm glad I don't have a podcast anymore, and I and I can't enable myself to just be uh, a self righteous asshole. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't just let Jim and uh, I think Brendan Leonard talk about um, picking a hanging rock. I just had to make everything about justify why you like it to me. Right, um, uh-huh. but. Uh, so I so you've seen Last Wave though. I have. It's been a few years and it's what I remember about it is that it's the only one, well, not that I've seen that many, but it it, it had some 
you could feel that it was from the same filmmakers picking Hanging Rock, which yeah. I don't get that impression from the, the Hollywood films that I've seen. Yeah, um, that's that's absolutely right. His, I mean, he is a good master and commander. Is just really, really solid, fun entertainment. Hmm. Um, there isn't really an emotional core to speak of, other than like the 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 doctor and the captain of the ship have a fun little relationship that gets worse and better as the movie goes on, but. It's not a powerful movie by any means, but it's very fun and well made. Okay. Uh, so, so he's a good technical director, even if a lot of those Hollywood movies. I do think you're correct that he kind of just had to bury any style that he did develop. Um, I haven't seen Gal- uh, Gallipoli. I haven't seen Year of Living Dangerously. So I and I haven't seen Witness actually. So I don't exactly know if he. Oh, I've, I've, I've seen Witness. I should. Okay. I've, I've, and have you seen uh, the Cars That Ate Paris? No, I haven't. <laughs> Neither have I. Okay, so I don't exactly know. Uh, there's a pretty big gap where I don't know how his style evolved or devolved or whatever. But but so I want to ask you about Last Wave compared to Picnic Hanging Rock because they actually both have the same problem, which is they they almost unspeakable levels of palpable but totally ambiguous dread. Yeah. Um. But then they squander it all away by getting way too specific with the procedural details of whatever element is introducing this dread. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, my memory of, of, of Last Wave, I gotta confess, is, is a little bit foggy now. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Uh, I do remember... It has that same actor from Walkabout, right? Um, the guy that played the Aborigine uh, in that. Yes, it does. He is, he's on trial for killing someone in a tribe, and then they're trying to... And it was over a relic or something that was stolen or something that was happening that none of the Aborigines will speak about to the white man because what it actually is is the apocalypse. Okay. Uh, a sort of cleansing wave that, hap- that That's right. happens. That's right. Okay. So it's about this lawyer who has been assigned to defend this Aborigine who murdered... And in sort of forcing his way into their world and to figure out what's going on, he uncovers this sort of thing. But it gets really procedural. Okay. Um, but uh, so I will say I much prefer Last Wave if only because A, it has an incredible uh, – it picks up that sort of dread. I think it squanders most of it away and then it sort of picks it up again in the last 15 minutes and has a great apocalyptic ending. I remember the ending. Yeah, I, I remember being the ending being, uh, being my favorite part about it. Yeah, so – and also, uh, which is just a totally nonsensical bias of mine, I like modern settings more than I like that's, historical ones. That's right. I remember this from the Jane Campion episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is – I mean I've gotten a little better with it. Yeah. Uh, as I've um, – I actually found – I watched a – BBC production, The Hollow Crown, which was a Sam Mendes produced sort of series, which was Richard II uh, and then Henry IV and Henry V part one and two. Mm-hmm. Um, or was it Henry IV part one and two? At any rate, uh, I saw Richard II for the very first time and I it was my access point to the emotional sort of core of Hitchcock uh, – not Hitchcock, Jesus – of Shakespeare <laughs> – and and since then, I've sort of realized, oh, I actually find a lot of that stuff really fascinating in that era. And I can probably put away those biases, but I'm sort of getting there little by little. I just – modern settings. There's there's scene – like like Walkabout, the scene with the that one shot with the swimming pool and the beach yeah. just sums everything up. There is a scene at the very beginning of Last Wave where 
someone has an umbrella and it's pouring rain and they duck their umbrella um, down in, on over a water fountain to get a drink of water. Mm-hmm. And it's like this great mind-blowing, like, yeah, white man disconnected from from nature, not knowing what's coming, even when it's pounding at his door, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's perfect summing of the movie. And there's a couple other shots like that. Like, the very early on, the lawyer, there's like a leak happening where a sink or a bathtub has overflowed. Mm-hmm. But the way it's shot is just like this water trickling down the stairways. I, I definitely called this out on that episode, too, because I was completely enamored with it. Um. Yeah. No. Well, I, I, I'm gonna probably rewatch the last wave. Yeah. Sometime soon. It's on Hulu Plus. I, I haven't bought it because I figure any day Criterion will announce a Blu-ray upgrade and I'll just buy it then. But um, yeah. So so anyway, those kinds of images and that kind of feeling in a modern context, mm-hmm. it's just more effective to me personally. Do you really feel like that the period trappings of, I mean, uh, pic- picnic picnic at Hanging Rock? Do you uh-huh. really feel like that? it is too caught up in like the pageantry of that period. I don't think that is its problem necessarily. I will say that it, it just distanced me a little more, mm-hmm. but I love the first 30 minutes of picnic and hanging rock when, well, what's the plot? There isn't a plot. It's a picnic yeah. and there are characters and they're, and I like that it is able to be sensual and about schoolgirls, but just just based on what they're dressed in, like it can't really. It's a pretty hard limit on how like objectifying or like leering it can be. Well, it's repression is the is the obvious theme of it, right? Yeah. Exactly. So I like I like that it it has that sensual sort of Euro sleaze feel to it. The same thing that like Duke of Burgundy. I was gonna had. just say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but but without any of the making me feel awkward and creepy elements and i and like that best exemplified both by, by those two boys leering at them as they cross the creek and they're like oh look at her calves <laughs> like yeah, yeah. like they, they, they catch a glimpse of an ankle and they're just and their imaginations go wild like so all of that stuff where they're sort of reading poetry and they're just following these weird trains of thought that it, it feels very um it feels very true to that age where you take these flights of fancy um, that based that are started in you know something you read or a poem you hear or something you learn in class, but your mind just goes crazy with it, and it's not you're a child and you're playing a game, but you still uh, sort of uh, exercise your imagination in ways that go in strange places, and there there's something really honest about those first thirty minutes. And as well as dreamlike and creepy and strange. Yeah. Well, it's like a horror film also. I mean, and the score really underlies I, that. I, I, this is something that people talk about a lot that I just I just don't feel. I just don't feel it. Well, It doesn't feel like a horror film to me. See, it does to me, uh, but it feels like a horror film. Have you ever seen that film, uh, The Long Weekend? It's, um, no. It's an Australian film. I think they give a fair amount of... Uh, attention to it in that uh not is it not quite hollywood the the australian oh, sure yeah um yeah it's but it's it's a film where like it's uh, in a nutshell it's nature's revenge you know mm-hmm. um and, and what picnic hanging rock it has that same kind of feel where it's like na- nature itself is maybe the threat if there's a threat like it's because you know it's it's maybe one of the most willfully ambiguous films of its <laughs> of its era. Yeah. Um, but that score, like that kind of minor key piano score reminds me of, um, uh, 
what does it remind me of? Uh, like uh, Mario Bava's Shock a little bit, and uh, even okay. even Phantasm a little bit, like that kind of like. I mean, is it like yes. a Mellotron? Like, but like, yeah, yeah, like, and also the, that soft focus <laughs> is is very phantasm. Yeah, well, and it's funny because um, I know that you are not um, maybe it's fair to say like the biggest Sofia Coppola fan, but like, I, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not, but, a, I'm yeah, not a fan I, of hers. I know you're not. Uh, but, yeah. you, but um, the Virgin Suicides um is something that I wonder if Sofia Coppola was thinking of picking Hanging Rock, um when she made that at all. Cause it seems like the way the Miranda character, like that kind of like most desirable blonde at the center of everything, you know, if, if the uh, way that she handles the Kirsten Dunst in version suicide, was at all influenced by, you know, is... I, I, I haven't seen that film, so I couldn't, it's the only one I think you might like of hers. I, I, I have heard that. And I, and I suspect that though. I do remember, I haven't seen it since it first came to DVD, but I do remember having a fondness for, uh, at least the jarring elements of Marie Antoinette. You know, I would say, like, if you ever do watch Virgin Suicides, uh, let me know what you think of it, because that's actually the one I still like the best of hers, and it's very different from everything else that follows. Um, but anyway, uh, but Pick the Hanging Rock, so I watched that again. I hadn't seen it in a little while, um, mm-hmm. and I was, I, you know, it, that was one that you had suggested, because... Um, we talked in email about what films you hated that we might talk about. And uh, right. so some of the choices that we could have talked about were The Piano, Alice in the Cities, Old Joy, uh, De Palma's Femme Fatale, Vernon, Florida, The Burbs, Stories We Tell, and Contact. Um, if you can imagine a more diverse <laughs> list. And they're, and they're not, not all films I hate, but definitely films I like significantly less than everyone else on the podcast. Yes. And I, and I, I threw Last House on the Left on the list also, but I was pretty certain that a second or third viewing of that would not change your opinion at all on it. it, it. I, I don't think it would either, but it's possible because I do like Hills Have Eyes and I haven't seen Last House on the Left in maybe 15 years. Really? Well, I... I should have picked that instead of the Rogue Not film, 15. I overestimated <laughs> my own age. It's probably closer to like 10. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, you know, I mean, I, I love Last House, but I, I get when people think that that one doesn't work. But yeah. Um, and I don't feel that strongly about some of them. And I don't really care about a natural born killers enough to even throw that on the list. Cause that was another sure. one that you hate, but, um, but picnic at hanging rock. I don't think, I'd seen it in a long time. And so I watched the thing like, all right, so what would I hate about this? Because I thought, you know, the first half hour is really strong. And I then I see where the pacing slows down and continues to slow down. Um, I don't think it ever... So I watched it again. I watched it twice before this uh, recording uh, in oh, the wow. last month. Um, just because it was the one I... I felt like I'd seen the least number of times compared to everything else um, that we're talking about. I can't count the number of times I've seen everything else. Um, But so it, I don't know. I I think that I agree with you that the first half hour is the strongest part of it. And I think that it doesn't lose me when it becomes more of a procedural and there's at least one or two sequences I think that really are effective that follow. But um, I can, I can understand the complaint. I mean, I, it's not a thing I, I, you're not the only person that I, I've read some reviews that also have that same complaint that it, it becomes less interesting when it switches from the girls in nature to the kind of melodrama with the headmaster of the school. And... I, I think maybe if there was a single 
character, like really strong character in that post post the girl's disappearance, mm-hmm. like that was sort of the emotional focal point of the movie. I mean, it might that might be work at cross odds with just how ambiguous and how enigmatic the movie is trying to be. Right. But like, I think I would probably have been able to tolerate the procedural stuff more, but because I didn't know any of the characters are really, I didn't think any of them interesting. I didn't think those two boys were good characters. They were just sort of their stock. And, and I like their interactions before. And when they see the girls crossing the Creek, just because of the contrast it serves for those idyllic sort of picnic scenes. Yeah. But I don't think that they're actually interesting on their own, and how what they feel about the girls' disappearance is interesting. Well, what's interesting? Uh, so we're gonna, I'm gonna for the next two or three minutes, I'm probably gonna be spoiling some picnic and hanging rock stuff. Sure. Um, but so that girl Sarah, that her fam- she, they can't afford to keep her at the school. So the headmaster start head, headmaster starts treating her rather cruelly. Yeah, I think. First of all, I think it's bizarre that she's the sister of one of the two boys that's looking for the girls on the hill, and it's never really it's they don't really ever drive up. It's like it's 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 kind of like sort of alluded to in passing because like he talks about like a vision of seeing his sister like in a dream right before you find out that she's been murdered mm-hmm. kind of randomly, <laughs> and that sequence when. Um, the girl that's been found on the on the mountain uh, is brought to the classroom in the red gown, and she's put in the center of them. And then the girls all start acting hysterically, like, like pulling at her, like asking her questions. It's just like it's just so strange. And then they they cut to like the fact that like that girl Sarah is like tied to the walls because of her posture like she's being like restrained like a prisoner uh-huh i i just i forgot that all of that was in the film like i i remember it being yeah. kind of like like a fairly straight procedural and i think that when we talk about like rewatching a film i was trying to like put myself in the mindset like the first time i watched it and not knowing where it was going to go so when they go back to the hill you don't know what's going to happen um, but then rewatching it when you know that nothing else is really going to happen except that like, you know, someone's going to be murdered off screen and then there's going to be a suicide off screen. It's, it's just such a strange construction. It had me wondering, do you think that a film that has its strongest 30 minutes at the ending is inherently better than a film that is top loaded with its opening 30 minutes or is, or is a 30 strong minutes enough to make a film worth seeing at least once i think 30 strong minutes is definitely worth enough to make a film worth seeing once it doesn't make it i don't for me i don't i rarely i mean like like it was funny you were you were talking about there's parts of fire walk with me that are just better filmmaking than 99 percent of what you see elsewhere yeah um and i absolutely agree with that and when i wrote my letterbox review of it i gave it a c which is much worse than most things i see like most minor like just weird kind of fun but goofy and stupid 80s horror movies i see get like a b minus you know right like but i gave but i i find it personally really difficult to divorce to not look at a movie holistically right um unless you know just my memory happens to be more selective with some films than others but like if i can't forgive a two and a half hour movie just because one hour of it is incredible. Right. 
Um, and that's just, that's sort of the way my mind works. That being said, like, I'm glad I saw Picnic and Hanging Rock because, because of that 30 minutes. Um, and I don't know if inherent, I, I think films are such alchemy, like they're so alchemical that, uh, it, that you can't really say anything inherently. Like it's better if it's start, it's better at the finish. Like it just depends on what the film is doing. Like right. a film that sort of has your attention, but you don't know how you feel about it. And then the last 30 minutes are incredible. Well, that's, that's often the first time you see audition, you know, right. <laughs> like, like that movie that clearly works in its favor. And then the second time you see it, knowing what's going to happen, everything else becomes so different and you begin to realize how the entire movie is really good. But the first time I saw audition, I was like, all right, it's kind of, I kind of get it. And then, oh my God, awesome. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and but then there's some movies that I if they if they have a bad opening hour and they have a great last thirty minutes I might never see the last thirty minutes because I don't often Make watch movies all yeah I don't watch yeah. the movie all the way through. Um, so with, with this one, knowing that you had a bad first reaction to it when doing the Peter Weir episode, did did you go into it kind of like well, I know I know that I'm gonna have that same reaction and then have that same reaction is that no i i hope springs eternal and there's i mean what was so the thing about this thing and we haven't talked about this movie yet but the first movie i watched to prepare for this episode was crash yes david cronenberg's crash which was the long the one i had seen the longest ago because i didn't watch it for the podcast right um i had i had watched it in high school so and i hadn't seen it since then and that i had turned i don't think that's like a masterpiece, but I had turned really hard on that movie. I like that movie a lot now. Yeah. And I hated it the first time I saw it. Oh, I know. And so every single one of these subsequent movies I watched, I approached it with that fingers crossed kind of hope. And I think actually Picnic and Hanging Rock was the next one I watched. Um, I think so, it was. Yeah. So I had that hope in the back of my head, like, you know, I could have been wrong. I, I could have actually, my taste could change enough that I really get this. And at the very least, this time watching Picking and Hanging Rock, I didn't feel tricked. <laughs> like, there is a certain level of betrayal when when the first time you see Picnic and Hang first time I saw Picnic and Hanging Rock and I and I just got so mad at Peter Weir for squandering it. Mm. Uh for like, why did you do that? Why what's the why? Like, are you are you punishing me? <laughs> like I it, like I felt that kind of feeling to it. And then just watching it again, just knowing how it's gonna be, you're way more accepting of that and you just know, oh, well, this isn't for me, but... Yeah, I think, I think, I, I, as much as I love the entire film, and I really do, I, I, I think part of it is I'm attracted to the perversity of it, of it being so top-heavy that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that it, it kind of wanders into this other territory, I find, um, I, I find it interesting that that's what he would choose to do. Well, another film we didn't do that, uh, that maybe, maybe that they're doing similar things a movie I didn't I didn't even watch the first time through because this is one of those films that I hated the opening so much that I couldn't get through it was Code Unknown. Oh. Is Code Unknown a film to you that like because the Code Unknown opens with a big inciting incident and then you follow all these characters who are involved. Yeah. And and from what I saw, which was about forty five minutes of it, it seemed to have almost no effect on like on the subsequent stories. Um or at least that I could make out. Again, also I just found it narratively difficult to follow but yeah is is it a similar feeling watching Pink hanging rock like the feeling of i like that it almost like it almost no no because code, code unknown builds to a climax that i like 
Oh, okay. So uh, I just haven't seen the climax of that yeah. one. Yeah. Well, Code Unknown, I think, is my favorite favorite film from Michael Haneke by uh, by a good margin. I think that it's I think it's a really fascinating uh, film. Um, but I the way that he tells that story, I, I can understand um, it being not for all tastes. But it, I, I think that there are. I think there are sequences in it that you would respond to in and of themselves. And it's such an episodic structure that you just kind of have to go with it. Like some parts you're going to find more compelling than others. Um, and actually I, now that I said this most, uh, that and the piano teacher, I, I should say a tie with me, uh, for my favorite of his, but, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, no code unknown does build towards an ending that I think is pretty memorable, but, um, yeah, it's not, Picnic at Hanging Rock, I think the ending, it just takes you back to that mountain and those girls in the dreamy slow motion. I think that that ending is quite beautiful. I think, I mean, I blame him for my student film that I made when I was younger having no proper ending because I was so caught <laughs> up in the idea that you didn't need one. Um, but the, That's uh, funny. Yeah, I kind of resent it for that. But uh, Well, it's funny because you mentioned, I think it was on the last episode that you were on, uh, an unsurprising dislike for the films of Michelangelo Antonioni. And La Aventura is a film that also has a mystery that is just uh, never resolved. And uh, to, be, to be fair to Antonioni, I've seen two films. Well, you've seen, like, what, La Aventura and Blow Up? I saw Blow Up. I can't even remember what the other one was. It was a lesser... And I can't even remember what it was. Well, it's funny because he's... It, <laughs> Of like of of things that I notice that you don't like in films, a lot of the tendencies can be traced back to Antonioni or Godard. Yeah, um, and Antonioni is you know your dislike for films that you feel are trying to comment on boredom by being boring themselves. I feel yeah. like that charge is what I mean. He, you know that that comes from Antonioni. Mm-hmm. I think I don't think Antonio's films are boring in the slightest, but that's where that impulse comes from, like that lack of action, yeah, being a, like meant to convey a theme. <laughs> I I don't I I don't necessarily even mind. Yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, I don't I don't know the right way to say this. Uh, that that makes sense because I again it's just it's so subjective. Everything is just so subjective. I don't have a treatise on like film should or should not do this. Right. But like I really appreciate Goodbye Dragon Inn for what it is and what it does. And that movie is all about inaction. Yeah. And it says so much with inaction. Um and but then on the other hand, like I think Revels of the Neon God are is is a movie about people who are bored and restless and stuck in a rut. And that movie is constantly engaging. Like that movie is constantly switching gears and giving really interesting scenes. Um, but it doesn't have that. It doesn't. It feels. It feels like the characters have a lack of joy in their lives, yeah. um, despite the fact that they're like juvenile delinquents or playing hooky or you know doing all these things. There's like a distinct lack of joy in the characters' lives that mm-hmm. I really responded to. But like, and it got that lack of joy across in the opposite way that like something like somewhere does, you know, where it's right. Yeah. And, um, and somewhere is something, uh, and, and to, to a lesser extent, um, uh, what is it? Uh, da, 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 the one with, uh, loss in translation, like those yeah. both, both, both seem to be drawing on Antonioni a little bit somewhere more so. 
Um, but it's also the way that environment is like a character, like the, the kind of cold modern cities, uh, of uh-huh. Italy are, are like a big, they're very much foregrounded in a lot of the major, uh, Antonioni films. Um, I don't know. I, I it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be impossible for you to appreciate them, but I feel like you might, I don't know what you'd think. Do you think, do you think there would be films that would be again, different on the big screen? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think it's necessary. I've never seen any of his films in the theater. Um, I'd I'd love to. I'm sure they're better, but uh, I just haven't been lucky enough to see them. Um, I, you know, I'd be curious if you ever get a chance to see one on the big screen, what you'd think of it. But I, I would be cautious in recommending them to you because I feel like I feel like they sum up what a lot of filmmaking tendencies that you don't like. They're all trying to do what he does. Sure, sure, and yeah, and again, I'm not holistically against people taking inspiration from them. Or saying they are objectively bad films or whatever. It's well, just, it really is just trying to figure out what my taste in film is by endlessly refining it by endlessly watching movies. Well, I would say that if you want to dip your toe into the Antonioni waters, try Le Eclis. It's not his most famous uh-huh. film, but I think that that's my favorite. And uh, I don't know. I mean, if you if, if don't watch Scorsese's. Um, documentary on italian films because he gives away the endings to like you know a bunch of them including that one <laughs> oh, okay um it's great once you've seen the films but otherwise just stick with the one on american films um yeah but i i think that uh yeah picnic hanging rock it, it's similar in that it's it gets a lot of mileage out of just hanging out in that location and just being atmospheric and ominous but yeah, I understand what you, your reservations about it becoming kind of like a, a very dry procedural and not a lot of payoff. But um... yeah, and I, I I wonder if my aversion to that sort of super slow, nothing happening in action, like that kind of cinema, has anything to do with just I my personality as a person is someone who really really hates to not have any like I I find it painful to not have anything going on. And I don't necessarily mean that in a... Like an ADD way. Yeah, I mean, I do have ADHD, but I, I don't mean it in a, well, I always have my smartphone out. Like, I I am, I often will take baths instead of showers because it allows me to just have a, a longer period of time in which I can just lie and think. But I need to think about a very specific thing and keep following it, and that that thought needs to have momentum. So I don't mind that sort of thing. But then the opposite of that, like the, the idea of meditation, the idea of like clearing your mind, mm-hmm. um, that is painful to me. I, I, I don't like, I, I need to have my mind always rushing on something. I don't need to always be stimulating myself externally via, you know, internet or phone or games or whatever, but right. like, I need to have something stimulating my mind internally at all times. And I think sometimes slower movies can be painful for me in the same way that meditation is painful for me. Well, so, I mean, that's that's why I don't like nature. I think nature, in, at its best, it gives me existential terror. And at its worst, it bores me, which then just turns into existential terror. Yeah. Like, well, speaking of things that are painful for you, um, when I uh, I was talking to uh, to Jim earlier today, and Jim was going to see uh, Hiroshima Monomore tonight. Actually, yes, he is. It's, I'm very I'm very jealous. And I told him that I would be uh, 
engaging in a, a Hiroshima-like tragedy of my own when the subject of Hal Hartley came up, mm-hmm. um, which he said to make sure to tell you. Um, but uh, so I knew that this one would probably be the one that stood the least chance of improving for you on a rewatch. And yet yeah. I felt like I had to give it a try. <laughs> so on episode 26, you covered uh, the films of Hal Hartley. Um, is it fair to say that Hal Hartley is your least favorite director covered on the podcast? It, it, he is my least favorite director covered on the podcast. And my, as far as personal taste in film goes, he's my least favorite director of all time. Though, as far as like, I wish there are, there are other filmmakers who I think are just hacks and harmful and have no voice. And mm-hmm. that like, I wish they weren't making films more because Hal Hartley is not so in the culture that it's like, oh, I can't stand that all anyone could talk about is is Ned Rifle. Like, I'm, <laughs> I am perfectly fine with Hal Hartley continuing to make movies until his heart stops. That's fine by me. Mm-hmm. I don't have to watch any of them. That's true. Um, but as far as, like, yeah, my personal taste in movies, Hal Hartley is my least favorite director. It's funny because, like, Hal Hartley, the first time I saw one of his films was I saw Simple Man, and I hated it. I thought it was too self-consciously quirky and mannered and self-consciously hip. And I just couldn't stand it. Mm-hmm. And then I saw amateur and I had the same reaction to amateur. Um, and I had the same reaction to Nadja, which is not a hell Hartley movie, but it might as well be. It has a lot of the same actors it has that same style. Um, and then I saw trust and I loved trust. And then I saw the unbelievable truth. And I loved that. And then I went back to, Simple Men and Amateur, and they clicked for me. Um, uh-huh. But it was it 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 took a little while for me to really engage with that style. And so when Henry Fool came out, um, I see I saw a sneak preview of it uh, with Hal Hartley there. And what struck me about it being different was that he, I guess he threw away the safety net of using the same. Uh, group of actors that he had been using a lot, like Martin Donovan and, and uh, Lena uh-huh. Lewis and people like that. Like he used all, I think first time film actors in a lot of the major parts, like stage actors. And then I guess what he did was he also removed the punctuation from the screenplays. Um, so that you, you, the, the style of acting that you don't like in his films, a lot of that is dictated by the script. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a, I don't know if you can even detect it, but there's a, uh, there's a slightly looser feel to the dialogue than in something like trust or simple men or like some of the earlier ones. Like it's a little bit, it's a little bit looser than the earlier films. Uh, What's, what's, uh, is it a simple truth or an awful truth or unbelievable truth? Unbelievable truth. There you go. Yeah. That is, that is the one that I feel like I connected to the most just because it felt like a broad comedy. It is. And it, did, yeah. it didn't feel like he was trying to make me care about anyone involved. And that's actually the only one Roger Ebert liked also. Um, and he got increasingly impatient with Hal Hartley. Well, yeah, I, I would. I will also say if I was a film critic who was forced to watch all of his movies, I'm sure that I would not have my live and let live approach to Hal Hartley, the director. Yeah, well, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I think... Um, I think with with Henry Fool, to me, like that, for better or for worse, I think that was the film he was ultimately building towards in all of his 90s work. I think that that kind of, I mean, Trust seems to be the sentimental favorite for a lot of people I know, um, maybe because it's the, you know, the romantic film. But uh, 
I don't know. I think Henry Fool to me is is my favorite. It's one that I never. There's not a scene in it I don't love, and I uh-huh. would actually, I could actually stand it to be twice as long, even though it's, uh, oh, it's sure. two and if, a half if... hours long. But um, so with that one, I'm trying to think how we even would would d- discuss this one because I don't yeah. want to make you dwell on it too long. So as as far as as far as preparing for the Hal Hartley episode, I uh-huh. will say that. I had seen Trust before. Okay. And that was one of the first things um, that I really, really hated that Jim loved and Jim Lake wanted to share with me. Right. So we knew going in, like, that this was going to be uh, an, uh, a, a, a very uh, controversial, at least between the opinion of me and Jim, mm-hmm. episode. Um, and I just knew I would hate it, and I absolutely did hate it. That's why I only watched three movies. <laughs> <laughs> And and to this day, I've still only seen. Oh no, no, that's not true. Because I've seen. Because um, I saw the girl from Tuesday or whatever. Girl from Monday, yeah. The girl from Monday, which is maybe the single worst looking movie I've ever seen in my life, including like experimental films that are just like flashing lights. Like there is no more painful visual experience I've ever had watching a movie than Girl from Monday. It's not. Yeah. I don't like stroby slow motion in Wong Kar Wai movie. Like the best, like some of the greatest films ever made. Like in my opinion, like Fallen Angels. There are parts of it that I just groan at because of the stroby slow motion. Really, even so, in Fallen Angels. Okay. Like I, I really don't. I just, it's. I think it were. I mean, in the mood for love, I think is where it works. It works the best to the point where I don't even mind it. Yeah. Um, but I am so. I just detest that aesthetic so much. I don't know why. Um, I don't really have any, like, real reason, like, any strong, like, philosophical, re- like... You don't need to have one. It, it. it can be purely aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So, anyway, Girl from Monday, absolutely despised visual experience. Um, but at least that distracted from the acting. So, so, so the, the thing with, the thing with, uh, so Henry Fool, um, I'm trying to think what I was going to say. So, you, you don't like the the tone of the film is because you don't have a, a good sense of when it's trying to be funny you're trying to be serious is that yeah it's it's the same problem i have with godard which is it just feels like i'm watching a foreign film without the subtitles on which i just can't parse what is actually going on um because taken straightforward i just find them absolutely unengaging and uninteresting and then taken as comedy i don't find them funny but then and then taken as some other third like meta joke thing that is like it's commenting on a con like i don't connect to that and i never can understand that i mean henry fool is actually one of the few movies where because the character of of henry uh is actually i think a strong comedic character i think he's i think the performer does a good job and i think a lot of the a lot of the scenes as he's written in a movie that had another director those would kill like i think there's a lot of really good lines but because of everything that surrounds it, um, it just sinks it, and just because of the, it's a, it's one of the longer ones, right? It just it just means it's more pain for me to <laughs> for me to sit through. So, give me an example, like, um, give me like. So, you're saying that the performance and the lines have have some merit, but the way it's directed is what's thr- yeah. is it because of the staging or the way it's cut? Um, 
there are non sequiturs and rapid changes of tone, like very traditional comedic things where he, Henry is giving this speech about the power of, and the nobility of the poet. And then he says, someone is throwing bottles at your house. Let us do like, let's, let's go break their arms. Yeah. Let's go break their arms. And without breaking it, like that is absolutely just comedy one Oh one. Sure. Like you don't see it coming because he doesn't change his tone. Right. You know, like there's, there's moments like that throughout that I can like, oh man, that would have been good. <laughs> like okay. I can identify it as strong comedy, but just buried under a tone that I find impenetrable. Hmm. Okay. Well, cause I mean, so what I'm saying though, is that you, you're, you're spotting where the jokes are. You're just not finding it funny. Well, um, in those cases I am, but then there are other parts that I can't believe are supposed to be taken serious, but I don't know how else they're supposed to be taken. Like give me an example. Um, just the whole subplot, basically his sister, uh, the Parker Posey character, Mm -hmm. the subplot where Henry has sex with their mom, like that, that the constant beatings that, uh, the garbage guy, I forget what his name is. Simon. Simon gets Mm -hmm. the, I don't know. I don't know if we're supposed to feel sorry for him when he's beaten up or if we're supposed to feel, think it's funny. I don't know if we're supposed to feel sorry for Parker Posey or we're supposed to, think it's funny i mean it's actually it's actually there is this miasma of sadness that is it's actually i there are films that i find much more engaging and accessible but it's actually a problem i have sometimes with uh uh lesser wes anderson films it's interesting that you say that because what i was um whenever people like in, in when i've tried to describe hal hartley to others um i would often say uh do you know the Gwyneth Paltrow character in Royal Tenenbaums? Imagine a film where that's the style of acting. Yeah. Because that's a Hal Hartley character to me. Absolutely. And 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 make no mistake, she is absolutely the, in my eyes, the worst part of Royal Tenenbaums. Right. Well, she it would is, make sense and you're consistent. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, it's, but it's also like, I, I hate that about... But there are things, like in, in Life Aquatic, there are, there are little... Um, there are just little... Uh, uh, digressions that the plot goes on yeah. that I think are supposed to be poignant but aren't to me and I don't know to what extent they're supposed to be blackly funny and what extent they're supposed to be poignant right like these are isolated moments or I mean it happens actually a lot more in um, Darjeeling Limited that's where it's the worst yeah um, where like the whole backstory where they're I can't even remember what's going on in that backstory where they're all running around trying to get their cars or whatever and yeah and there's just a lot in that movie in Darjeeling Limited that it, there's moments where I'm like I I guess that was, he was going for poignancy but it wasn't I did, wasn't rooted in anything I'm not grounded I can't I think I right words because it's been a while since I've seen Darjeeling but like, right right um and but that is the entirety with the exception of the character of Henry Fool um who I think is pretty much a hundred percent a comedic character well he's a complicated I mean, the thing with that character, I mean, he's, I mean, it's the same kind of thing that some earlier Hal Hartley films were trading as far as like, you know, the, the, the drifter stranger comes into town and shakes things up. Like, and it's, 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 it's pulling from Westerns, that tradition of like, you yeah. know, stranger comes to town and shakes things up kind of, kind of story. But the, um, the fact that he is shown to be so kind of, uh, undisciplined with his vices and has this past of molesting a, an underage girl. 
I think is meant to give him kind of like a uh, a quality where you're not so sure if you're supposed to be rooting for this. Like he he's like obviously like this doofus blowhard of a character, but there's also some potential sinister undercurrent with him that I think I think I think there's an intellectual quality to Hal Hartley comedies that I can understand why that would be off-putting, but I think like there's there's clearly decisions being made just for the sake of making things interesting and unpredictable. Maybe maybe they'd be to the detriment of of the whole piece, you know, if you're not into it. Uh, with with what your complaints of uh, the the tone, it reminds me of of things people have said to me that could not connect with Wes Anderson, which is why it's funny that you mentioned him. Um, like when Royal Tenenbaums came out, I knew people that hadn't seen Rushmore or Bottle Rocket that went to go see it. And they just thought they thought it was like bad TV writing or something. They could not get a grip on, on what was trying to be done with it. I will uh, also say that I don't think Hal Hartley is one tenth the visual director that Wes Anderson is. And I honestly think, and it could just I think I think he is specific with his choices. It's not like ha- Henry Fool looks like television, um, which is just sort of the default storytelling. Like whenever I see a movie that has no style at all, I just think, oh, it looks like television. And I think there's right. I think there's. Pl- I think it's above television, but I think that, and it could just be the fact that the music is so horrible in Henry Fool, like, and it's just plastered over the whole thing. It's just like, it just, and I think it is Hal Hartley, right? Who does the music. Yeah, I love it. And it's just him like plunking around on a Casio keyboard or something. Mm, Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you, if you don't like it, I mean that I can, I I, I like that score, but yeah, but um, yeah, I actually think that he's a really sophisticated visual stylist the same way Wes Anderson is, but he's, I mean, a minimalist, whereas, uh, Wes Anderson is a maximalist. I mean, it's, he, he crams the frame with detail, and Hal Hartley is clearly paring it down to very specific positioning of actors and the way it's all framed. It's maybe not in something like The Girl from Monday, where it's like obviously like a, a real haphazard kind of look, but the something like Henry Fool and even something like Trust. Um, I just watched Trust again recently with somebody who had never seen it, and it's the the, the framing is very precise. Um, maybe I, maybe what's throwing me off is that I don't maybe because I find the sh- the movie imparsable, mm-hmm. I don't find the direction um, functional. Which is to say, Wes Anderson. Whenever I'm watching one of his movies, or his like better movies, mm-hmm. and even even most scenes in his bad movies, I know exactly what he's saying and what he's saying about the characters and how you're supposed to feel and where the joke it like it feels very assured in that way. Whereas with Hal Hartley, I always feel the opposite. Yeah. So it, it might be precise, but what he's precisely doing, I have, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> well, that's fair. And I appreciate you going through the longest of all Hal Hartley films for this podcast a second time. <laughs> well, I mean, again, hope springs eternal. I thought, you know, you didn't like Hal Hartley when you first. No, saw I, his I didn't. Yeah. It's, I really hated it actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's still possible down the line one day I'll like Hal Hartley movies. I probably am not going to watch another one for a while, but I absolutely have not decided to never watch another one of his movies. Because as as I already talked about with Jim, like I have a guilt over having holes in my experience. 
So I, I'm eventually going to watch and rewatch some of these movies. Yeah, well, it's funny. I I considered having you watch one of the hour-long Hal Hartley films you hadn't seen, but it, it seemed like contrary to the idea of the yeah. show. Yeah, um, no, no. I, I think it was Henry Fool was a good choice because there is something there. I mean, I like it's, Hen- it's his, I don't know if I like Henry Fool more than Trust just because Henry Fool is longer and therefore <laughs> I ha- there's more pain associated with it. Yeah. But, like, I think... There, I, there is more in Henry Fool that I like than there is in Trust that I like. Well, Henry Fool is also the closest thing he had to a hit. It made $1 million. Um, <laughs> it won the Screenplay uh, Award at, at the Cannes Film Festival. And uh, it's apparently spawned two sequels, which I would have to say, if he, Ethan Hawke wants to go around saying that the Before trilogy is the lowest grossing trilogy in cinema history, he's really got to look deeper. Um, yeah. <laughs> But I actually, I, you know, well, I don't know. I, I'm glad that you watched it. Uh, you know, I still, it's one of my favorite films, period. I think it's a fantastic movie. But I, 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 I as someone that hated Hal Hartley on first exposure to him, I, I never really don't understand when people have your reaction to it. Can you, can you say, though, like what it was specifically that clicked for you? You know, it might have just been... I could connect with the character of Adrian Shelley or Martin Donovan. Like, well, because Martin Donovan's an amateur too. I don't know. I think it just, it might've been the fact that like trusts like was doing like a romantic melodrama plot, which is like a lot more accessible. And, uh, I it, it just registered to me, like finding it funny. It's like so hard to, it's so hard to define like what like you know tickles your funny bone it's like so sure, subjective sure, sure. and i i just i find his stuff really funny but it's funny in a way that like i guess like someone like david mamet would be the same way where it's like because it's so stylized and self-conscious when direction is really self-conscious it's it it can either throw you right out or you know you, you or you click with it i mean but it, it's it's definitely like there's almost no middle ground when it's something that self-conscious. It's funny that you mentioned David Mamet because another – I actually – I realized there were two other little jags I've been on recently. One is I saw Terminator 2 and Mad Max Fury Road back-to-back uh-huh. um, on the big – not back-to-back but pretty close to each other uh, both on you know the big screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I way prefer Terminator 2 to Mad Max Fury Road. So there you go. If anyone wanted a reason not to listen to my opinion – <laughs> um, I'm sure there are a hundred thousand people on the internet who will who would point to that and say, "Yeah, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about." But I, I would I, agree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think that I think that uh, there's an analog craft that is in Terminator 2, even though Terminator 2 is cited as being like the birth of CGI. Like it's really like ten minutes of very obvious. This is where CGI ends and practical effects begins. Yeah. As opposed to Mad Max, where everything kind of just felt fake. Because there's so much compositing and there's so much, like, sure, most of that is practical, but it doesn't, but the digital color grading is so heavy that it might as well not have been because it doesn't look like a real event that happened in front of a camera the way that Road Warrior or Terminator 2, those kinds of scenes do. At any rate, so I've been getting into action cinema and, like, studying, like, watching these action movies and really studying the framing and the staging of action scenes. Like I watched speed. I watched, um, on her majesty's secret service, which is actually a, a pretty good, um, action movie. Yeah. 
I'd agree with you. I, I'm not even a big James Bond person. And I would I would say that has a lot of good action sequences in it. Um, other other than the worst worst green screen in the history of of mankind, uh, <laughs> when with all those skiing scenes. But there's also some really good like practical stuff in the skiing scenes as well. And anyway, and then the other thing I've been into at, only at work is I've just been putting on every David Mamet movie. Um, and I think even the ones I wasn't too hot on when we did the David Mamet episode, like Spanish Prisoner. Like that's my I favorite just, one. I love that movie. That's so good. I I think Homicide is still my favorite. Yeah, I haven't seen Homicide in a long time, but I remember liking it. I mean, and House of Games I like a lot also. Yeah, House of Games is great. I I think Joe Montaigne. I just I don't really like the actor at the center of Spanish Prisoner. Um, it's but, not. An, is it it's not Scott? Maybe I don't remember his I think name. It is. Yeah. It's not enough to. It's not enough to like cripple the movie for me. But I think Joe Montaigne as a central actor in House of Games and Homicide are just, like, so strong. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing The Spanish Prisoner in the theater and, like, turning to someone that I was with halfway through and just like, this is so amazing. Like, just because yeah. I, I was just drunk on the, the joy of the writing. I, yeah. I just thought it was so... And it, it's so mysterious when you don't even know what's going on in that first half hour. It's just, like, everyone being really clever and you don't know what, the, what, what where it's all going. <laughs> and also it's so assured that... It's like, it is the lead, like, Homicide has someone, you know, a bomb going off, and it has a murder, and it has a tense scene with a dog. Like, it actually has high points. Mm-hmm. Spanish Prisoner just, just goes. It's, and it doesn't, and it doesn't have, like, these crazy intense scenes. It doesn't have, like, this super aha moment. It just, it's just very methodical. Yeah. Um, and I, I appreciated that so much this time around. Um, oh, and, but at any rate, if someone said to me, the same things that I said about Hal Hartley, but about David Mamet, especially, I feel like later on he got more, like, I feel like Spartan and Red Belt are two films that feel less mannered and feel closer Uh, to naturalism. I I guess so. Uh, It's funny because I remember seeing them both in the theater and it's, it's kind of like with Woody Allen when like, when they would advertise a film as like a normal movie to normal people, yeah. and then you get to the theater like, you know, don't you know, don't you read the credits? Don't you know what you're getting into? And so you'd go to the theater and it's like people thinking they're going to get, you know, a Gene Hackman thriller. And then they get people talking like David Mamet characters. I would always find it really funny because like not everybody in the audience was like, you know, ready for mm-hmm. something that stylized. I mean, it's not quite as bad as like, you know, people going to um, the Jason Biggs, Christina Ricci comedy and then they get anything else. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that there was walkouts when I saw that, but, um, but yeah, I, 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 I didn't see Red Belt and, um, uh, would you, would you say that that is more naturalistic than the early films? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say it's a little more naturalistic than, than Spartan. I, I, so if you don't see that much of a difference between Spartan and say like Homicide or House of Games, then maybe you wouldn't see a difference in Red Belt either. Okay. But Red Belt also feels weirdly Hollywood in that there's a happy ending. Hmm. Which which almost feels like well, blasphemous. Well, Spanish Prisoner has a happy ending. Oh yeah, I guess it does. <laughs> I guess I guess Spanish Prisoner, you spend so much time with that guy in over his head. Yeah. That whereas Red, because I mean, I talked about this on the David Mamet episode years and years ago. But like the thing about David Mamet movies, the thing I always think about is actually a quote from The Wire, which is, "Well, that's what you get when." for giving a fuck when it isn't your turn to give a fuck. Yeah. Uh, and that is like, actually, that is just how every single David Mamet movie proceeds is someone steps out of their station and the world punishes them severely for it. 
Well, it's, um, it, it's 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 kind of like all the old British Hitchcock thrillers that you like, like the wrong person accused trying to like yeah. catch the right you know the right Ex- bad guy. Except except in those in those movies, it doesn't feel like I feel such intense systemic oppression happening all the time in all of Mammoth's movies, which I don't associate with those kind of light and fun thrill early Hitchcock thrillers. But yeah. But Red Belt has that plot, except that in the end he wins, which hmm. feels weird to me. Well, like, I... imagine if at the end of Homicide he was able to, like, turn it all out and then he got the case. You know, like... Yeah, yeah. I mean, Red Belt is a sports movie in no way. It's not a sports movie. But it is it, it is more traditional Hollywood than Homicide. Well, but, I... yeah... I, I, I don't know. The thing with Mamet is like, you know, in these recent years, he's, you know, kind of come around to being like this hard right wing kind of character. And I, 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 I do worry that like that means that he'll have a harder time getting movies. Financed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Because <laughs> um, I think that that is kind of unfortunately true. I mean, he was always kind of working as a kind of a marginal character. He, he was never even working with the same kind of clout as like someone like Michael Mann, who also seemed to like... Right, get away without having a whole lot of really big movies, and yet to be treated like a big movie director. <laughs> well, every once in a while, Michael Mann will do Ali or Heat. Well, yeah, or was Collateral a, was a was a big success too. Yeah, I mean, some of them make money, but like, I don't even know. Like, Last of the Mohicans made a lot of money, but most of them don't make a lot of money. I don't think. Um, I could be wrong. Maybe on video they do, but it's not like he makes blockbusters, you know, on a regular basis. I think, I think he's just, uh, people trust him to make a certain kind of like grown up thriller with big movie stars. And so, I don't know, maybe he just talks a good talk. I don't know. But, uh, I mean, I, I like Michael Mann a lot. I, I saw that you, uh, you also gave kind of a pass to black hat, which I thought was interesting. If not like, I get why people, you know, didn't show up for that one, but it's, I don't know. There's there's a lot going on in that that I think is for for a commercial Hollywood film. I think is quite interesting. It, Black Hat is one of those movies. Yeah, it just sort of dug at me in a way that I was one of the people who go. Now Miami Vice isn't good. All the people who love Miami Vice, they're just they like to they 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 like to be contrarians and they like to praise the things that everyone else hates or whatever. But like Miami Vice is actually there's nothing going on there. And then like I see Black Hat and I'm like. Oh shit! Maybe Miami Vice is actually good. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe I'm wrong. Well, <laughs> well, that's yeah. I mean, that's a thing. Like when we talk about like Hal Hartley, and I, I think that like I always think with like directors that I don't care for, or you know, that there's always going to be potentially some key in another work that they do that yeah. would allow me to open the door for the other ones. Like, well, that's what I hope for. I mean, how Hartley, I just get so nothing else out of it that I'm yeah. not going to go through his work looking for that key. Yeah. You might not find pop, it. Yeah. If it pop and if, yeah. And if I do and it pops up, that's, that's great. I mean, I will revisit his work eventually, but probably by going some other route, probably from just being like, well, I'm watching a lot of Parker Posey's now movies now. So I guess I'll watch Faye Grimm, you know? Like, yeah. Well, let me, I was going to ask you this. Do you have, with, with directors that you don't like, is it a love-hate or is it just a hate-hate? Because for me, the, sometimes directors where I really dislike their stuff, but I find myself watching a good chunk of it. Like, Gregor Rocky is like that for me. Yeah. And Oliver Stone, to some degree, is like that for me. Although there are Oliver Stone films that I just flat-out like. But I, wanna, I, would, I would actually really be curious. What are some directors you hate? Uh, Gregor Rocky, I hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Bay, I hate. But mm-hmm. I've seen almost every Michael Bay film also because I'm fascinated yeah. by it. Um, 
trying to think. There's not a whole lot that I really. I can. Are there f- are there any like just journeyman directors working in Hollywood today that you you don't, don't necessarily connect to a certain thing, but you just have hated every movie they've made? I don't think about it. I mean, you know, I don't really see that many films I really hate, and when yeah. I do hate them, I I don't. I don't put a lot of importance into it because it's usually just something that's kind of just tired and not really that thrilling to me, but it's not usually that I have a very strong reaction. I just have a very ho-hum, mm-hmm. I guess that's just another bad thing. Um, but I usually don't see that many films that I can't find anything good about. Like the, I think maybe the film that I had the biggest problem with this year that I saw was uh, me and Earl and the dying girl. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think it was like like a crime against cinema or anything. I just thought it was like overly cute and phony. <laughs> but yeah. but you know, it's a it's a it's a it's an up and coming filmmaker. Like they might make something good. There's some scenes in it that work. You know, like I, I try. Do you ever do you do you ever feel yourself hating something more because so many of your peers like it and you think it's phony like that? Like do you do, is part of if no one talked about me Earl and the dying girl and you saw it and you're like yeah it's just kind of there and it's kind of phony and it's just overly cloy but you I, you wouldn't give it much thought unless everyone else was really enjoying it or I you know I didn't or know, do you, does that stuff not affect you I don't know I mean like something like I'm trying to think of something that I really felt like on the outside of because like I because I definitely felt that way about House of the Devil yeah. I, I, I've seen more boring movies than House of the Devil, but I've not seen more boring horror movies that people prop up as, like, great examples of recent modern horror. Right. So, like, House of the Devil really irritated me because I do – I mean, I usually, if it's a filmmaker I don't like, there is something in them that I still find compelling – yeah. Um, like Oliver Stone. There's something about his work that I find very compelling. Well, the thing with Oliver Stone is like he, he so fearlessly thinks he's making a great film every time. Yeah. There's a certain kind of like Spike Lee is the same way. Like when Spike Lee makes yeah. a bad film, it's not just it's not just bad. It's it's swinging for the fences bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, with House of the – and I understand with House of the Devil because people do overpraise it. Um, and I think that House of the Devil for me – I forget if we ever talked about How's the Devil. I think that How's the Devil, I like it until things start happening. And then I get less interested when it actually becomes about the horror at the end. Because I think that it becomes very trite and over-familiar territory when it actually starts getting into the horror. But I don't, I actually like the atmosphere of that opening hour. I, I find it really, I, I understand why you find it boring. But I, I find it really compelling. I, I really uh-huh. do. Um, but like that, yeah, I use that as an example of, or uh, even like, there are directors who mostly make movies I hate and mostly have instincts that I hate, like Rob Zombie. Yeah. But there is something in them that I absolutely have to return to. Um, There is something about House of a Thousand Corpses. Because also Rob Zombie, he's one of the few artists, he's one of the few filmmakers who before he ever made a feature film, he had a fully developed aesthetic. Oh yeah, <laughs> like public aesthetic. Like, like Rob Zombie was Rob Zombie, and that's what the White Zombie album covers look like. That's what the White Zombie music videos look like. That's what the Rob Zombie music videos look like. Yeah. Oh, and it turns out he also made a feature film that feels like that. And so much of that other non-feature film stuff of his, mm-hmm. I adore. I think Hellbilly Deluxe is one of my absolute favorite albums ever. Um, and so I keep looking for that in his movies. Yeah, actually, I. I... By default, one of the biggest defenders of Rob Zombie I know, despite not really 
thinking of myself as a fan of almost all of his films. Just because you find something interesting about them? Yeah, because like everyone I know dismisses them as the worst garbage ever out of hand, pretty much. That I become the one defender of something like Halloween 2 just by the fact that I like it and everyone that hates it. But I, I don't know anyone that likes it besides me. Um, yeah. And uh, I thought that um, Lords of Salem was even better than that. I think the last two films he made are his best two. There's the thing. The thing with him, I think you can detect and you can you can detect an original voice in all of it. That I think that even a, a director who makes real crass films with a lot of like needlessly profane dialogue and bad stunt casting of like you know horror convention guests as your, as your supporting players. Yeah. Um, there's still something there's still something personal in them that they don't feel like hack work to me that mm-hmm. I just, I, there's, they dare to be unpleasant and they dare to be, you know, reflections of this guy's interests in a way that I it, just, I, I, I can't, I can't disregard even the worst of it. I, I don't, I hate when they explore the origins of killers when they remake movies that were, didn't need to explain anything in the seventies. Like I don't need to know Leatherface's childhood or Michael Myers' childhood. Same, but at the same time, I think the Halloween remake I like that it it is totally ruthless with Carpenter's film. And I love Carpenter's film a, a billion times more, but I like that it's not it's not just it's not a, precious. It's not a glossy precious reverential treatment of Halloween. Like it's the thing, not the thing that the thing that you're talking about with Halloween is the exact reason why even if even if like they manage to somehow make it work I don't think I'm going to enjoy the new Star Wars movie because I think there ha- there just has to there's going to be way too many elements of like don't worry guys this is the original trilogy look original trilogy thing like, yeah exactly I mean already with their marketing materials they're just like celluloid practical effects we're we're it's like the 70s all over again man like yeah <laughs> like yeah and it's unnecessary I, I would love a filmmaker and apparently they are going to just keep cranking out Star Wars films that aren't part of the main series yeah. and I would love. Uh, just like someone to do something really strange with the Star Wars. Yeah. Like I would love a, a remake of White Material, but it's <laughs> on like a moisture farm and it has Tuscan Raiders. Like, like oh, something yeah. like really strange and stuff that has all the iconography and all the the the, yeah. the places and stuff of Star Wars, but like is not at all a mainstream. Oh yeah, I, I want Code Unknown on on Tatooine. Like I, I <laughs> like I don't. <laughs> Like, I, I want it. I, I would give that franchise to all the most uncommercial. I would give, you yeah. know, like, I want Nymphomaniac, you know, like on, the, a, on the planet of Hoth or whatever. Like, I, I want, was, like, yeah, confrontational. There was a podcast I listened to that was talking about, like, the fact that they just kind of crank out Spider Man movies now just so they have the rights to Spider Man. Right. And they were talking about, like, what if it just got more and more baldly, um, just like de facto to the point where they weren't even paying attention to it. And they just like gave Lars von Trier $500,000 and said, make a Spider-Man movie. It would like, be the best one. It would be the greatest Spider-Man movie ever. I mean, well, some people would love, I'm not a, I'm not the biggest fan of Spider-Man two, but, uh, so that's my favorite one. I, I know it is my favorite one as well, but I just don't which, think, yeah, which it, the, yeah, I don't, I couldn't finish it last time I tried to watch it, but I think it's my favorite one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, well, um, but, um, before, what were you saying? Uh, oh, um, I also, I was curious if the, if the other way around ever happens with you where, have you ever seen something at a festival or seen something before it makes 
sort of hits critical mass. Uh-huh. Um, and you had no expectations because you hadn't heard anything about it. Right. And you thought, huh, yeah, that's that's pretty good. Like, you, you didn't hate it. You didn't love it. But you just thought it was all right. And then... And then it sort of builds up its own momentum and it becomes a huge thing. Either this happened to me with Housebound, which I don't know if you've seen. I love Housebound and I have two examples already ready to go when you finish this off. Because Housebound I saw and I'm like, you know what? That was actually more interesting than I thought it would be. I mean, it wasn't that funny and it wasn't that scary and a lot of it was kind of whatever. But like for a movie that I just caught at midnight at a festival, which I had heard nothing about, I was pleasantly surprised. That's a B. That's all right. That's a good movie. Yeah. And then now Housebound has sort of hit this critical mass once hitting Netflix that it's like it's becoming a new cult classic. Yeah. Like people are really loving Housebound. Yes. And I don't and I certainly don't dislike it enough. But to... you but you feel like a strong kind of resistance to Housebound because people are overpraising it. <laughs> yeah. I, it's not even a strong resistance necessarily because I don't dislike it. It's just that. I am so confused. I'm like, what am I missing? What is going on here? Yeah. Like, because I, 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 is, I, I'm like, are they all inspired by just the fact that everyone is like housebound, 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 and then they have to love it or hate it, and so they yeah. amplify their love of it? Or is it, or did I just not pay attention to it as strongly as I would have had someone told me, you got to see housebound. It's a really, really good movie. Well, there's two that come to mind. Um, and one I've really, like, swung hard all the way around again on, which was uh, Her... Spike Jones film. I saw the premiere uh-huh. of that. I did not have any expectations going into it. I was having a really, really magically bad day uh, when I saw it. Like it, someone, someone that I did not know, but like someone's uh, mother was killed that day. Like so, our plans got th- thrown out, and then oh my, I, my car, my car broke down in another state, so I had to rent a car to get to the screening. Like all sorts of bad things were happening that day, and I saw only lovers left alive and her back to back at that uh-huh. festival. Um, and her, I liked it. I didn't know anything about it at all. I didn't even know that it was Scarlett Johansson's voice until near the end of the movie. I, I suddenly picked up on it. Um, and I liked it. And then I saw that the National Society of Film Critics had awarded it the best film of the year. And I thought, huh, like, really? That's the best film of the year? And, um, and like, seeing, like, all this everything, it has, like, this groundbreaking film, and, like, it was changing things. That, that movie really, yeah, people really took to that. People really took to it, and I kind of got a little bit resistant with it. I mean, I liked it fine, but I'm like, you know what, this is kind of being, getting a little carried away with this. And then and, you start to think more about the things you didn't like about it, like, you just, like, in thinking about why you don't think it's the best for a movie, you're like, Actually, you know what? I, that was kind of whatever. Well, but it's the thing is with that one is like I've rewatched that one now maybe three or four times. Really? And that's one that has gotten better for me where I was able to jump the hurdle of my own internal, not quite backlash because I wasn't like trashing that film. But like right. I think I think that I, I was a little bit weary of like some of the praise that it got. Foxcatcher was one that I saw along similar lines, but I knew Foxcatcher had some buzz from Can, And what did I see back to back with that? I saw that back to back with Birdman, which is another one that, yeah. Um, there were a lot of movies in the past couple of years that are solid, good movies that have one element that people really latch onto and obsess over. Yeah. <laughs> like I think the, I think the camera work of Birdman people really, the people who really love Birdman, that's what they really got into. I think the world building of her 
yeah is maybe like the thing that people really respond hard to i mean i don't know tell me again well what you think about her now well the thing with her at the time that i resented was that i loved the master and i loved synecdoche new york and i felt like this film was benefiting from people that didn't want to take a chance on those on those colder more challenging films um, by being the latest example of the of the Charlie Kaufman esque film, uh-huh. I didn't. I thought Charlie Kaufman wrote it when I was watching it because it felt so much like his other screenplays. That when I saw that Spike Jones wrote it, I was just like, "Oh my god, he's just he, he's become his own Charlie Kaufman." Um, I, and Joaquin Phoenix, you know, I think is fantastic in that film. But I think I thought that it was like this cute, fuzzy film compared to those much harsher films and i think i was at the time kind of reacting a little bit to like my frustration that those films were kind of considered failures by a lot of people because they're so cold and here was this like warm and fuzzy answer to it that was going to benefit from all the good in a way i had that same kind of reaction uh, to Mulholland Drive versus Lost Highway, where I thought that Mulholland Drive was benefiting from, like the years that people needed to catch up with Lost Highway were now going to be, you know, Mulholland Drive was going to benefit from that because it was superficially similar, but it did not have the whiff of misogyny that Lost Highway has because it has all the kind of the noirish, femme fatale exploitation of women kind of kind of thing. I thought that, um, you know, her, I had that kind of reaction to it now I, I I've come to just the conclusion that it's and I, I heard your 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 conversations about her on this podcast where you say that it's just a, you know a, a pretty solid romantic comedy that doesn't need the technology maybe I'm paraphrasing like the the, te- the technology is a gimmick but yeah, you, it, it would it would it would be the same film without it being about an operating system yeah it's funny that you thought Charlie Kaufman wrote it because I thought that was like the element that was lacking was some something that extrapolated from the technology angle into saying into some crazy zone or like yeah i thought i thought that that was kind of superfluous and it was a nice flavor and i enjoyed it but um that it didn't ultimately say anything more than if it if they if 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 it wasn't that well you know like how the last act of her has that kind of like kind of almost wallowing, spinning spinning its wheels, kind of like lack of momentum. A little bit, yeah. Being John Malkovich kind of has that too. And I feel like, I don't know if Eternal Sunshine has that. I'm trying to think. Synecdoche, New York Eternal Sunshine. Eternal Sunshine does not have that. Yeah. Eternal Sunshine is too, the momentum's too great. Yeah. I I, I just, it's it's something that I associated with the kind of screenplays that he writes, that he would have that kind of, that weird pacing to it. And I think that her, maybe I was picking up on that and thinking that was similar, but as, sure. as I've gone back to it, I, I think that less and less, um, and I can really see the differences, but I, there's, there's a lot of little things I like about her that I, on rewatch that I think didn't register on the first viewing, which is again, what makes it hard for me to always trust first viewing. And, um, I mean, even with something like Inherent Vice, like I think I talked to you on the Tarkovsky episode about that, and I'd only seen it the one time. And all I knew is that I'd seen something, 
um, something that was memorable, but something that was going to definitely yeah. divide people. And it's like the fact that I was even thinking about it's going to divide people is me already being outside the film and thinking about cultural impact, you know, and it's, so it, it took yeah. me to go back to it again, to just fully see it for what it was. That just the problem with a lot of films for me is like the best ones. I need to go back and have that second experience to really, see it as the film itself because the first time I'm just making up my mind the entire time on what I think, what everyone else will think. And I don't uh-huh. know how I don't know how critics fight that tendency. I think critics lean into it. <laughs> I think I think I think I mean not all critics, but I think a lot of critics revel in that. Do you think that that like obviously it's no big secret that what cr- critics respond to and what the general public responds to are there's there's seldom a lot of overlap. Um do you think that that's because critics respond intellectually to things they haven't seen a thousand times, and so things that function as traditional entertainment just don't register for them anymore? I, um, as someone who works now at a video store, and I actually very rarely give my honest opinion about any movie someone is renting, mm-hmm. Because I don't know who they are and what their taste is, and I want to actually help them. I don't want to tell them not to rent. Uh, eh, don't rent Foxcatcher. Like how? It's like how's Birdman? I don't want to say, oh, it's so overrated. Because right, I had a, I thought Birdman was enjoyable. I had a fun time watching it, and they probably might too because of all the the unusual things about. It. You know what I mean? Like yeah. So I, I mean, number one, I don't. I'm not on any social media and I don't have a television that, I mean, I don't have cable or any network access. So I never watch commercials. Um, I don't have a good grasp of what popular culture is (laughs) or what other people's opinions are other than the, you know, 30 so people that I follow on Letterboxd, which is a very specific group of people. So specific, in fact, that usually they all review the same cult movies at the same time because they all watch them on Wednesdays at the draft house together. Right, like the the exact. I see like five reviews pop up of the same screening of the same movie. You know, all of a sudden, everyone has an opinion about Lady Terminator. It's because they all live in Austin. Like right. my my <laughs> worldview is very my, yeah. is very narrow. Um, but I will say that uh, most people don't care about things about film as art. Um, most people uh, don't like to. Most people like to put down money and get something they expect. Exactly. Um, and yeah. I think most film critics don't put down money and they like to be surprised. Yes. Um, and I don't I don't think it's necessarily like Also most um not most. I I couldn't I shouldn't even say most regarding any of this because I don't have a good grasp of it. I don't study this sort of thing. I don't I don't read any box office reports or anything. Mm-hmm. I I have no idea what's in and out of theaters a lot of the time just because I don't, you know, again, I don't see commercials. But, like, I feel like a lot of critics are reactionary and feel like that they are fighting cultural forces of apathy towards art and yeah. that they will be reactionary. And that they, if they see the Avengers 2 and they go, who cares about the Avengers 2? It's just, it's the same Marvel movie again with the same... CGI action scenes or whatever and then they see Mad Max Fury Road and 
again, this is me putting because I didn't like Mad Max as much as other people. So this is me putting my own like this must be what they're thinking, which is nonsense. But anyway, it's what I think. So this is what I'm going to say. I think I'm probably going to agree with you, but go on. I think people will reactionarily say, oh, my God, there's Kraft and he's editing it. And they're real people on real cars. This is the greatest thing anyone's ever seen. And and I don't actually think that Mad Max Fury Road holds up to that uh, sort of hype. I think that a lot of the love of Mad Max is very reactionary against an increasingly CGI-driven Marvel aesthetic, like or or lack of aesthetic, honestly. Um, yeah, I, I think that with Mad Max, I think that... I think it's, on the one hand, it's like that, uh, that the uh, tourist strain of critics can, can name 10 George Miller films. And so therefore, it's like, you know, it's, it's a return of like someone that's been in the game for a long time coming back to a property. It's like, it's, it's an artist that has a body of work, which Mm -hmm. isn't the same thing as like, you know, uh, a lot, a lot of journeyman directors that do the Marvel movies. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is that if they can connect with a big commercial film that will keep them from accusations that they are out of touch, you know, they will probably leap to praise something that the majority is going to overpraise because critics are getting axed all the time all over the, uh, the the media landscape because there's thousands of critics that will do it for free online. And it's just easier to just link to the associated press than to have some critic that's potentially going to trash the Avengers and get a lot of hate mail to the, you know, to the newspaper. You know, I mean, I think, um, I think like when, like when someone trashes the dark Knight rises and then like suffers through like dozens and dozens of emails from people that haven't seen the film yet that are angry, you know, and it's the same thing, you know, with art films also. I mean, people make up their mind that they love the master before it even opens. And then, you know, it's the same, it's the same kind of thing. People want to believe so strongly that the movie is almost secondary. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. the movie is secondary as far as marketing and hype machine goes. The movie is like a byproduct of if we sell it this way and spend this much money and we, we are taking this X risk to make this X reward. Like the movie is definitely a byproduct in Hollywood. Yeah. Before, before I totally forget it, there's one last film that I had you watch. And this is the, yes. ha- the happy ending here because this is the one film that I – I was hoping you would like it, but this is actually the one film that you did the most extreme about face on. This would be David Cronenberg's crash, which yes. uh, was discussed in episode 14 and actually was discussed on the last podcast I did for director's club with Jim on the second David Cronenberg episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim uh, still does not care for that film. Um, I, you know, did my best to defend it. Um, <laughs> even though it's like, you know, it's, it's not a it's not a film that I I understand it when people don't like it. It's a it's a it's a cold, uh, uncommercial film. Um, but tell me, all right, so your reaction you saw it as a teenager, right? Yeah. What was your reaction then? Um, I wanted to see some fucked up shit, and I heard there was a lot of fucked up shit. Yeah. So I was excited for it, and then I was displeased when the fucked up shit was sort of just like bits of fruit floating in this jello mold of morose sad people <laughs> like <Okay. laughs> like like everything about that movie is so cold and sad and dead and 
And then there's like little great moments where I want to be able to tell someone, oh man, I saw a movie where someone, some woman has a scar on her leg and some guy fucks it. Like that's, yeah, that was the cultural cachet I was seeking from from Crash when I was 17. Um, So then, so then when you prepped for the Cronenberg episode, you, you didn't rewatch that one. You knew that that was one that you kind of made up your mind but what's yeah so what's funny about that is the reason I was still so harsh on Crash is one super super stupid reason just cuz I was stupid the way I was usually stupid on the podcast when I was on the <laughs> podcast like one super stupid reason is I liked the symmetry of there being two movies called Crash and them both being terrible yeah I liked that no matter how you cut it whether it was the super inaccessible art film Crash or it was the crowd pleasing bullshit uh bullshit art film crash <laughs> like <laughs> that that both were terrible i yeah. i like that symmetry and that fit with my worldview um and also and so that's that's the stupid reason yeah. and then the other thing is that i had assumed that my taste on it wouldn't change because my reaction to crash is actually the reaction i have to a lot of cronenberg movies and still do mm-hmm. which is i find them very clinical and cold and I tend to not be super enthusiastic about them unless they are in a strict genre setting where that is that sort of thing is meant to be building towards a a sort of more functional baldly functional goal of fear or dread or something like that you know like the brood and the fly um or or I mean and then on the other hand, there's something like Naked Lunch, which I adore just because I like William S. Burroughs. And like that to me, that like Naked Lunch feels separate, even though it's clearly a David Cronenberg movie. I like it for reasons that are very, very different than the reason I like most David Cronenberg movies. Yeah, it, st- it, stands, ap- it stands apart from the rest in my mind. I mean, it, it feels yeah. very unlike most of them to me. But, but like, uh, but like I, I listened to the second part of David of the, the part, David Cronenberg part two episode that you guys did last month. Yeah. And I was just, I was sort of beside myself uh, just because I couldn't, I couldn't imagine you guys love Spider so much. I thought that movie was so bad. <laughs> I thought that movie was so... I thought that movie, A, was dull, and B, predictable, and C, felt so simplistic in, like, how prescriptive it was as far as, like, traumatic thing A happens and result B is madness. Like, it felt like as broad a a psychological study as something that would be in, like, a silent film. You know? (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, I, I, so I was, I was, I was... I was dumbstruck that you guys like Spider so much, and my yeah. reaction to Spider is the reaction I have to a lot of it, David Cronenberg's movies, which usually the the amount I like a David Cronenberg movie that isn't a strict genre film, um, like like The Brood or The Fly, um, or to a lesser extent Scanners, which I just I just don't think that's as well crafted as his other ones are. I would agree with you. Yeah. Um, but like the amount that I like his movies tends to be how much I'm able to look past that essential filmmaking of his that I don't like. And I, and actually I I last time I watched History of Violence I found it kind of simplistic and broad as well. Yeah, well I've never loved that one and it's weird to me that that's become one of his most popular films. Well, 2005 was the year that I actually first started like visiting film websites and and reading forums and stuff. Yeah. So I was super excited about History of Violence and I saw it and I was like, "Yes, this is the best movie of the year." And 
I don't remember if that was actually ultimately my favorite movie that year, but like I was all about I think maybe Squid and the Whale was just which it still is, I think. Yeah. But like I was all about history of violence when I first saw it and watching it now it's I, I'm not as strong of it. But ugh. But well but I mean well and I would say about Spider is it, it, in a way it's I respond to it the way I respond to Crash, where it's like the aesthetic uh just the mood of it i I find so powerful i mean i I, if if i were to like look at it in terms of like you know the psychology of it like what you're saying like you know like one event triggering everything and feeling like a little bit convenient um i i I don't even think about it in terms of realism i think i just think of it in terms of imagery and uh individual scenes playing in a way that's powerful there's a there's a film that was one of his inspirations on spider because i remember when spider came out he had an interview where he gave like a handful of films that were inspirations to him cinematically and there's one called the long day closes uh terrence davies the guy that did uh, the deep blue sea that doesn't have sharks in it um that film just came out through the criterion collection within the last year if it's in your video store i think it might be like period i haven't seen it in a long time um mm-hmm. but it's like like 1950s england um well i i like 1950s I, yeah I, I, yeah i, 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 I know you don't that, like period yeah i was gonna say it's like period but it's not like yeah it's not like a costume drama mm-hmm. um you might like it as a mood piece i don't know but um it's if did, did you like deep lucy i forget i love that i love that movie okay terence davies i, I would say that if, if it's in your store, it, it's something I would recommend to try it out. But I mean, if you, if, if, if you find that it, it's too lacking an incident, then it, it doesn't really have a lot of incident. I'll just tell you that right now. It's, it's more of a mood piece than a uh, film with a lot of events. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it, Spider was a surprise to me also. I mean, I remember liking it, but I rewatched... I rewatched a mountain of Cronenberg for that episode. Um, and that one was probably one of the happiest surprises that and rabid, uh, were the ones I was surprised how much they had improved for me over the years. Mm-hmm. But, but anyway, back, back to crash, back to crash. So I've read your review, but for the listeners have not, what, what was your take on it going back to it? Um, well, first I should say that, uh, listeners who have been listening for a while will know that um, I used to deliver pizzas for a living, um, and now I I do not have a car or drive because I was in an accident, and then that car was totaled, and I got a new car, and the day after I bought the new car, um, it went on a rampage. It, it, it started accelerating uncontrollably, and I couldn't put it into park, and I couldn't turn off the car. And I was on the city streets of Chicago and I was trying to figure out how the hell I was going to – because I couldn't get it to stop. I couldn't slow it down or whatever. And so I – it was a very traumatic event. I still – you know, two, three years later, I still have nightmares. Um, well, maybe – that's – I think it was like three years. I still have nightmares uh, about being in uncontrollable cars. I still can't sit in the front seat of a car. Mm-hmm. Um, I have dreams that aren't nightmares that will end with a car crashing through the house I'm in and killing someone. Uh, it's, it's needless to say, car wrecks, uh, hold a much bigger part of my brain than they ever have. Yeah. I remember when you recounted the car, the car, uh, I guess the second incident you're talking about on the podcast, I don't remember which episode it was, but I remember you talking about like a really harrowing, (laughs) like car ride. Basically I had to, I had to like run a red light and cut off a bunch of cars and then drive it into a park. 
um, and, you know, lay on my horn the whole time so I wasn't hitting any pedestrians. And it was one of those things where if it had happened 10 minutes earlier, I would have been in the loop and I definitely would have caused major property damage, like just absolutely life-ruining property damage, um, yeah. if not hurting people. And then if it happened 10 minutes later, I would have been near the United Center on a Rih- night of a Rihanna concert and I would have for sure hit people because people are constantly crossing the street at all times. Sure. So it was one of those things where it was the most traumatic event of my life, but it could have been life-ending. Sure. Um, in any uh, like, so it's also looked at as like the biggest bullet dodged ever, um, in my head. So anyway, yeah. So obviously, a huge part of my brain uh, is is now occupied by a strong reaction to car crashes. Um, they don't freak me out so much in movies, just because they rarely feel real in movies. Yeah. Um. But, you know, like I watched Speed the other day. There's a, there's a movie about an out-of-control automobile. And that was just – that was just I was just enjoying uh, Jan de Bont, uh, the way he frames his uh, action scenes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but – so there's that aspect to it. And then also I've been in, in like an open relationship and I've dipped my toe into kink and stuff. So I'm – I have way more experience with that world mm-hmm. and, and those feelings than I, you know, ever could possibly have imagined when I was 17. Sure. So in both those ways, this this is the coldest, like least accessible Cronenberg movie. Actually, just through pure chance, opened up to me. Um, yeah, which is interesting that you have like that much. Well, because you so much about you has changed, both in terms of like your you know sexuality and in terms of the, the your experience with with uh, out of control cars that uh, you you have all this all this new access to what the film is dealing. Yeah. So there's actually like moment to moment basis. There's a lot of things in Crash that I just there are lines that I would never have been able to appreciate previously, just because it was so outside of my experience that when they're sitting on their balcony and they're looking and they're saying it looks like there's more traffic than there used to be. Um, that is an actual feeling I have all the time now. I mean, it was certainly worse the first few months after the accident, but. I am so hyper aware of traffic and I live next to a five-way intersection and I'm constantly freaking out about the amount of cars that are um, around me. Uh, And that like – so there's little moments like that throughout the movie that are just access points for me. Hmm. Um, But you have described this movie on the last – on the Cronenberg episode as being like mostly about the – a mood and the aesthetic and not – and not so much your favorite thing about it is the characters or the story. And I actually found the aesthetic really compelling this time around as well. Maybe just because I already had that access into it. Yeah. Um, which I think that, uh, as we brought up on this episode, that tends to be an important thing for me is to have some sort of emotional access into the lives or the heads of the hearts of the characters in order to appreciate other things about it yeah well it's funny because like i mean i do i do care about the characters and i I do care about the story to an extent but it's not it's not what makes it a compelling film for me i mean it's funny that it doesn't even really have uh villains really i mean if if you think of vaughn as the villain it's not that he's even really has malicious intent he's just maybe a little selfish in his you know his project. He, you know he's a little bit reckless with everyone's safety, <laughs> but it's not like a uh, it's not like a horror thriller at all, and um, it makes it like almost kind of hard to really categorize the film, uh, which I, I, I find really attractive in most cases where a film kind of resists easy classification, um, and that's I mean that intellectually, and I think that's attractive to me. But when I watch it, 
it's the marriage of the uh, of the images and and the, and the sound and the, and the music and yeah, I mean, I, I I talked about it pretty recently on this show, but I you know the just the the, the marriage of all the, those things together, um, the various collaborators of Cronenberg, you know, um, like Peter Chudzinski and Howard Shore, like everybody kind of bringing their A game to like this kind of real rough and ready kind of like kind of like you know uh, film in the streets of toronto like it's it's a no frills dangerous film like they know they're making an x-rated film with like a controversial book like it, there's no illusions that it's going to be a mainstream film and yet they're using mainstream talent they're they're using all the skills they've built on these bigger projects because they're all coming off of van butterfly and naked lunch and all these like studio backed projects and they're making something edgy and dangerous and i just find that exciting you know i, mm-hmm. I, I it's it's still maybe my favorite it's it's one of my it's my last easy favorite Cronenberg film, even though I like what he did after that. But I, that's still it, it only gets more perfect as the years go by for me. And um, I, I watched it back to back with Duke of Burgundy with someone who had never seen either film um, uh, a few weeks ago. And I, I know that you mentioned Duke of Burgundy either in the reviews or in the common threads of, of, of Letterboxd. And would you, would you talk to me about uh, where you see there's Jim brought that up as a film that he felt did correctly what Crash fails to do for him, and I know that you prefer Duke of Burgundy, but yeah, would you? What? What? Where do you see the the connections? Uh, well, I mean, they're basically the same story. Well, so if you are not paying, like, if you don't aren't, if you aren't really following the emotional undertones, which is you know, it's a very cold movie, and the. The acting is very flat, so it can be hard to miss. But if you're not following the emotional undertones of everything that's being said and every and the progression of scenes and stuff, then the entire movie just feels like sad people walking, like sitting around talking about fucking and then fucking and then fucking in cars and then fucking cars. And like, yeah, like it all seems like the exact same thing. But each scene actually has really specific emotional purpose, and it's the same thing, which is what you want to love someone and you want to be someone for that person. Um, and in this case, James Spader and uh, I forget the name of the actress who plays his wife. Deborah Kerr Unger. Uh, yeah. I don't know if she's his wife or his partner. I, I think it doesn't matter. Doesn't but matter. Her, yeah. His, and they have this relationship already built on this idea of cuckolding and, and voyeurism and, and exploits and stuff like that. Um, and sort of teasing and, and tempting and taunting each other. And it's that's sort of what their relationship is built on. Um, and then James Spader has a traumatic m- event happen. So, like, at the beginning, you might think, oh, my God, their relationship is falling apart because they're so clearly unhappy. But it is actually, you know, whether or not it's any of the movie is, quote, unquote, healthy, like, they are doing what couples should do, which is finding a way to work. You know? Yeah. Uh, so then James Spader has this accident and suddenly he finds himself reoriented, um, you know, sexually. And she loves him. Uh, and she, you know, there, no one ever says I love you in the, in a movie this cold. But, like, she loves him and she needs to and she needs to be part of his life still. So the movie is about James Spader sort of discovering this side of him and... Deborah Unger, for better or for worse, being along for the ride and all the ways that she tries to be part of it. And but she isn't comfortable like that car wash scene is so heartbreaking because there's yeah. so there's so much just 
like it's it's such an expression of love to go as far as Deborah Unger goes. Is is her last name Unger or Kerr? I'm Deborah Kara Unger. Yeah. Okay. Her, yeah. Unger is right. a last name. All right. So yeah, and so that movie to me is just about their central relationship and about how they try to please each other in the best way that they know how, while still not just completely losing their sense of self. I mean, and I think Duke of Burgundy does it more elegantly. I think Duke of Burgundy um, is a little more playful. I think Duke of Burgundy is just a stronger of a whole. There's, there is parts of crash that I still think are too cold and, and to the point where it gets really silly. Uh, Like a lot of the dirty talking that uh, Deborah Unger does Mm-hmm. Um, talking about his the specific uh, uh, anatomy and, oh, yeah. of Elias Cody is like I think that's just silly and it takes me out of it. Um, and I think that I I think that the sort of not really conspiracy storyline, but there is a element of paranoid conspiracy thriller in Elias Codius's character as far as there is just this implication that he has this grand plan that no one understands. And it's like, and I think that adds a sense of dread to the movie, which is necessary because that is, because that mirrors sort of the James Spader's attraction to it. So as an audience member, you are drawn into what Elias Codius is doing. Um, But I do think that that ends up being that, that ends up, not contributing as much to the central story of the central relationship as, you know, as, as much as like something like Duke of Burnie, which is nothing but that relationship, you know? Right. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't say that it's as good, um, but I definitely think they're doing the same thing, which is actually, if you, once you get past all of the trappings is about two people who love each other and are trying to figure out what that actually means and how you verbal like what is the verb uh to love someone like what what do you do what actions do you take who do you what what do you not do what and like that's that's just real relationship shit (laughs) like that's just really well observed relationship shit and once you have access to that sort of thing once you're actually paying attention to it and it doesn't just feel like endless posturing um then you find that every scene is actually has a specific intent for the most part there's Again, there's a few touches here and there that just feel a little bit indulgent, but that's I don't mind that so much. Yeah. Most of the scenes actually move the story forward and then it actually and then you actually feel the movie have momentum and then you know, and then and then it doesn't just feel like, oh, it does its thing and then it ends. What did you make of the last line? Do you have do, do you do you well, have... I don't have it committed to memory. What how does this end? Uh it ends with and I I'm assuming anyone that be listening to this would uh-huh. you know know the ending but like so, um uh Spader uh triggers the car accident that like r- uh, runs her off the road and uh-huh. then um he's embracing her in the grass and um he asks, uh, are you all right? And she says, I think so. And then he says, like, maybe the next one. Uh, maybe the next one is the line. Uh-huh. And do you have any interpretation as to what they mean by that line? Yeah. I mean, I would... Uh, uh, I mean, apparently it isn't clear, but the clear meaning I took from it was just that the answer to the question, "What? how much do I love this person? How far am I willing to go? Is... Totally, and I'm willing to do anything, but you will a willingness to be something does not make you that thing. Um, and I think 
and I think that maybe the next time is implying that they're going to keep escalating this until she has his condition or has his inclinations and or she's dead. Yeah. <laughs> like and maybe the next time I I it means I think they both instantly know just from the way she responds to the wreck that it didn't happen. Yeah. That she is that, not that's why she, Yeah, that's why she's So sleeping. that's what maybe the next time implies like maybe next time you will be aroused or next time you'll be dead. And either and I love you so much that that's just that is what I've turned myself into is I have to do this for you or I'll be dead. I think that's sort of what that means. That's that's kind of how I take it too. Yeah, I mean that's... Which, which in which is sad but but romantic at the same time. Yeah, no, it's 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 a, it's a it's one of my favorite endings. It's my favorite ending of any of his films for sure. Mm-hmm. Um I, I couldn't agree with that. I couldn't find that spot cuz I drove all around Toronto looking for crash locations one time. I couldn't mm-hmm. find that spot but uh um yeah, well, I'm glad. I I know when uh, you when you rated that Highland Letterbox, uh, Jim sent me a uh, a real funny uh, message, just totally confused that, and he was you know he was wondering if you would love Henry. Yeah. Ford, that's... <laughs> speaking speaking of speaking of like um, really being attracted to things you hate um, because you want to see what other people see in it. Yeah. Jim, because he likes so much other Cronenberg. Because I don't think Jim generally approaches movies the same way I do, or from what I've what's implied from what we've talked about on, through email, like through what you do either. Yeah. Which is, I don't think Jim. I think Jim likes movies because he likes movies, and I think he cares about movie history, but he doesn't feel uh, the compulsion to like contain all of movie history inside of him, yeah. and and to have all the answers, and he doesn't feel the desire to like force himself to watch movies that he doesn't like. Um, unless, but he does want to relate to people through watching movies and therefore he will watch movies that other people like, even if he doesn't like them because he wants to feel what they feel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel but it's like less I... out of like, it's less out of like an obligation to this, like, uh, to this monument to, to cinema that he's building inside himself and more that it's just how he empathizes with people. Yeah, I, I I suffer from both, so I see a lot oh, of yeah. movies. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Um, I I think actually going back to the ending of Crash, though, I think yeah, the ending of Crash is very typical of uh, the Cronenberg ending. Like even in his more mainstream films, like uh, Dead Zone and The Fly, which is like doing something doing something above and beyond for a loved one, um, even if that's the most painful thing for you to do. Like, I feel like the ending of The Dead Zone and The Fly always mirror each other as far as just being this person has self ex- has sort of uh, self-imploded um, with whatever is inside of them um, and their partner or someone that they care about is suffering for it. Um, uh, I mean, I, I do you, you feel that way about The Dead Zone? Isn't isn't it the dead zone after he, he shoots Martin Sheen like she yeah. is there? Yes, and she like grabs his hand sort of and yeah, like she was the one thing he cared about, and that's why like I don't know. And then the fly, I mean, it's not the exact same actions, but, but like if uh, it has well, the same but, mood to it. Like it's this, oh, like, t- I totally agree. Yeah, tragic uh, this, this tragedy that comes out of someone's love for another person. 
Yeah, well, the, the the tragic romantic part of the Dead Zone, I, I feel like, definitely informs The Fly. And it's why those two probably are uh, two of the most commercially accessible films, because they have that that extra kind of warmth because of the romantic aspect. I think I think that the uh, I mean, and the end, the ending of Naked Lunch emphasizes the tragic, sure, <laughs> and the ro- uh, the tragic and the romantic, and the ending of uh, uh, the Brood is not. The ending of the brood is like an inversion of that. Yeah, well, the, the, I mean, that's... I mean, it, is I, a, it is a couple or a former couple, like, confronting each other and it having apocalyptic results, you know, like... I mean, that's 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 him exercising, like, real anger at somebody. Like, that is yeah. that is barely a movie, like, in, yeah, in, yeah. in some way. I mean, that, like, I mean, it is a movie, but it's like, it's a, uh... I, someone was, I was talking to somebody about this recently because I don't know if you have seen that Criterion have announced that they're uh, releasing The Brood. And my, one of my fears has come uh, true with this is that Cronenberg does not appear to participate in any of the supplements. Yeah, I, um, that would that, – I, I, that's a smart move. I wouldn't either. <laughs> well, I, I mean – and you know he hasn't participated in the special editions for the last uh, several major releases of his earlier films, uh, and he used to be pretty hands-on in you know you know Dead Ringers and Crash and Naked Lunch and Videodrome and a lot of the special editions Criterion you know had had put together for his work or even things like Fox's release for The Fly. But like um, the last special, the last few special editions, he's been kind of absent from the uh, supplements and. I wasn't I sure. I don't know about the other ones, but I know that the brood that would be uh, pretty awkward to revisit. I think, <laughs> I think the brood is his version of psychoplasmics or whatever the. Yeah, well, his, his the, the 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 laugh line was always like he would always say it's his version of Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, but I think like what the what's the name of the therapy she goes through in the brood? It's psychoplasmics. Yeah, psychoplasmics is like she go she like visits this trauma so harshly that something is just that a biological entity is forced out of her. And yeah. I think the brood feels like the biological entity that would just like came the videotape that David Cronenberg pulled out of his chest along with all of his hate, you know, yeah. like Yeah. Well, that's what my friend was saying that maybe maybe it's just, you know, he's careful not to talk about it because, you know, the, some of those people in the real life scenario are still alive, like the daughter and, you know, I, I mean it maybe it's just a bad idea to discuss it. I know Scanners was a real painful shoot for him, also, so that might explain why he doesn't show up on the Criterion collection. Why, why was that painful? I think I don't know if it was like a just a troubled production. Like I think it might have been rushed into production before the script was finished, or something. Like there were problems where he was basically like rewriting on the script, uh, the script on the set a lot. Oh, okay. um, and that happened with Videodrome's ending also, where I think the ending of Videodrome was kind of found on the set. But Scanners, I think it maybe shows in the film more like the kind of frantic quality that film has. Yeah. I think part of that is not entirely by design. But, you know, the fact that it was like a big commercial success, I think, is kind of more one of the more peculiar things about his career that that. Because I don't know that many people that think that's one of his better films. In fact, it seems to be well, one thing almost all my friends can agree on is that it's kind of one of the, the lesser films in his body of work, but it's one of the only hits. Um, but yeah. I, I, I just remember that Dead, Dead Ringers also ends with like love between two two people finally confronting their love and it having tragic results. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely... I mean, there's a... there's a The tragic ending of in Cronenberg... Uh, I mean, most of the films really have that. Um, and, but and, specifically between two people who who love each other or have loved each other. 
Yes. Yeah. I, I, I mean, does that hold true in Unbetterfly also? I'm trying to think. Uh, I mean, that, 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 I, I don't want to spoil the ending if you haven't seen it. Because um, you hadn't seen it at the time of the, of the last podcast. What, which one? M Butterfly. Oh, I haven't seen M Butterfly. Yeah, I won't. I won't talk about the ending. And I haven't seen the last like three movies he made. <laughs> they're 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 a tricky bunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I, no, I listened to the last. Uh, I listened to the Cronenberg part two. Yeah, the audience knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm kind of trying to think of this anything else. Uh, I think we're at the uh, three and a half hour mark. Here, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's our traditional. Yeah. Point. Yeah, and you can totally. Um, I might. I might. I might cut out. You yeah, can cut, I might cut out you, a lot of the digressions. You can cut out. You can cut it down to an hour if you want. I mean, we could <laughs> do what you want to do with it. I mean, I. I'm not. You know. Um, yeah. The, the 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 actual act of the conversation is the most fun part for me, anyway. So you can cut. You can yeah. cut it however you want. I I, I agree. Um, I uh, I enjoyed their chat. Thank you so much for donating to Most Likely. Oh, thank you so much for uh, for for watching uh, at least five yeah five films that you hated at least once and s- sometimes twice. <laughs> well, you know the uh, the bonus episode, the next bonus episode I'm doing is going to be more fun. I'm covering anthology horror movies. Nice. Which ones do you know? Which ones you're doing? Um, we haven't decided exactly the ones we're talking about yet. We are going to be talking about Dead of Night. Okay. Which right. is from the forties, I believe. Yeah, the 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 Ealing uh, anthology with the yeah, I know it. It's it. What's weird is this is this was pitched to me by Robert Reinecke, who's going to be on the podcast with me. It was pitched to me as like that's the first anthology horror movie, and I go, oh, cool. And I tried to think of earlier ones, and I couldn't. And then today at work, I I, I came across Waxworks, the uh, the German expressionist film, and I go, oh, wow.